Hello and welcome to the Shock Horror Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Shock Horror Halloween special. Thank you very much for joining us. It is 2022. It is Halloween and we've got some treats here for you. No tricks, just treats. Firstly, we have a discussion with the great and amazing Shani B talking about Halloween ends. And a little later, I will be talking to Ray J about the most controversial TV show of all time, Ghostwatch a TV show that scared a nation almost to death, but mostly to call up and complain. But that is coming a little bit later. And just to place a very delicious cherry on top of that cake, I will be playing you some of the hits from John Carpenter movies, music that has been conducted and written by the great man himself that will be coming up a little bit later so that is our schedule here on the shock horror podcast thank you very much and i hope you enjoy happy halloween oh my god what a miracle it is and joy to hear your voice once again oh bless you ditto absolutely 100 percent ditto how are you getting oh, on? Pretty well. Just out here living life, working, living, watching movies as I do. Fantastic. When How I say you? when I say fantastic, if you can see my avatar, I'm a vampire. Oh yes, fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I'm fantastic. I'm very well. I'm very, very good. I am here also with same as you working hard and uh watching lots of movies and getting into the halloween spirit which is of course amazing because it gives us a lot to talk about yes yes oh i'm so excited to talk about this with you it has i have so many thoughts i have so many feelings. <laughs> um uh yeah let's do this um sure. tell me about your experience you know like i i'm not sure how you feel about the first two but i am really curious you know how you felt going into this one and what your where you were when you saw this film right well we're talking of course about halloween ends so yeah well if anyone's out there welcome to us talking about halloween ends this is going to be an interesting conversation i do feel like me and you shani b are going to be on the same page about this i've got a feeling in my bones that me and you are going to have quite similar sort of respect for this movie and going to have mm. similar views so i'm hoping that that is the case because you know i don't i don't want us to have our first stereo fight <laughs> no i mean i could never fight with you either I, i'd try to take your perspective and i'd be open to all perspectives that's my game. oh i love that that's very diplomatic <laughs> that's um, how politics works guys if only if only so yeah, Halloween ends. The saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode comes to a spine-chilling climax in the final instalment of this trilogy. 
So should we actually, before we delve into Halloween Ends, should we go over the last two films? Uh, exactly. What was, your, what was your sort of impression of Halloween 2018 when it first uh, was shown in the theatres? I mean, my first impression of the initial film was absolutely excitement. I felt like there were a couple of seeds going on here and I liked the violence, but ultimately when it ended, I kind of felt like underwhelmed and like I didn't think they had done what I was hoping they would be able to do, which was really actually start something new in a meaningful way. It just kind of felt like they got very excited. They thought they had something and then they didn't, they kind of half baked it in my opinion. So I just was not very satisfied with the first one and the sequel, oh, really, really lost me. Um, just felt like it kind of cherry picked from the canon it claimed to not want to utilize at all. And I just really couldn't get into it. So I, the first two films for me were really challenging to uh, accept. But what about you? Where, where were you with this first one in 2018? So I was really caught up with the hype of this movie. I really was. Um, mm. I was working on the, the BFI London Film Festival at the time. And whilst I was working, I was opposite one of the biggest cinemas in London and they were doing all the advertising for Halloween 2018. You know, it was everywhere. And mm. um, our manager said to us, look, I know the manager of the cinema, so I can get you a couple of tickets for the premiere if you'd like. And I, we were like, yes, of course. So we got to sit in the IMAX, you know, me and my friend Hannah, and we were there and wow. it was the big screen. We had our snacks, you know, there was people dressed up as Michael Myers. There was a whole atmosphere around it. And when we mm. were watching the film, you know, I was really sucked into the story because everyone around me was so appreciative of what was going on. And it mm -hmm. took me a couple of times watching it to actually sort of follow the plot and not get caught up in the hype. And I mm. do kind of agree with you um it it didn't do anything new it was mm. almost like someone had taken all of the halloween movies laid them out cut them up and just pieced them together yes um it was a cut of cut and paste halloween mm -hmm. movie and you know there's nothing wrong with that i suppose what they were trying to do was reintroduce this story to a new audience that might not be familiar with the you know the tropes of the franchise mm -hmm. and i get that but I think for us diehard fans, it was a little bit paid by, paid by numbers. The thing yes. that really got me, though, and having rewatched it recently, is it Sartain, the doctor uh, in it. His character, for me, was completely unnecessary. I don't know why he's in this movie. <laughs> Yes, we never return to him. We never return to any of those pieces of what happened in the story. We kind of just do what we were we were always going to do, which is get into Laurie's life and be more with Laurie and her story. So I agree that initial film was so strange in what it tried what it tried to maybe say in a new way that ended up being completely abandoned ultimately. Sure. And in a um, documentary or a discussion with David Gordon Green, he talks about mm. the character of Bartain and he basically says that the reason why that character was introduced was to was to bring Michael and Laurie together. I'm mm. sure there must have been a more inventive way of those characters clashing and not just having, you know, so you're the new Loomis driving, mm. you know, Michael to Laurie's front door. 
Yeah, I guess that's my one of my problems overall with this franchise is that the characters tend to be pretty black and white. They tend to have only one real thing going on and not a lot of nuance. And frankly, if his role was to truly bring them together, maybe I'd have liked to see a more decisive lean into he's the one who makes what happened to Laurie Strode about some sort of dynamic between them. He's the one linking them. And that might maybe explain why he's coming for her 40 years later if there is no relationship, if there is no, uh, you know, nothing behind the evil in his eyes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, the character really could have maybe served this purpose he intended if only had more conviction with telling that story. I completely agree. And then going into Halloween Kills... We then have, we're now confronted with the, the, the theory of, you know, Michael and Laurie, their, their worlds were never meant to really collide. Michael right. has, has no, you know, sort of regard or feelings towards Laurie at all. There's no malice right. there. It just ha so happens that they are put together. And but, but then that is completely, again, written over by kind of the story of Halloween ends. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. there's no co the cohesive sure. And I'm not sure whether they were going with, you know, the um the Star Wars blueprint of having the mm. first film that is, you know, very much a remake of the original and then having a very random, you know, second instalment which kind of just throws things in there for the sake of it to see what mm. sticks it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and then having <laughs> a third a third installment I, I think the only difference between the franchise is that when it gets to the third installment which we're going to go into in a moment i think that the braveness that they that they showed with halloween ends should have been mm -hmm. the brave the brave route that they went right back in 2018 if halloween yes. ends had been the film that they the first film that they came back with i think everybody would have a different opinion on it one thousand percent i completely agree because it just feels like they got so lost from where they were in 2018 to where they were when they did halloween kills which was to your point before a little bit more cut and paste of canon they didn't want to be a part of like that the town turning against michael myers is straight out of halloween four and five and yeah. that's you know what i mean you can't i guess you can't have it both ways just why this third installment is so incredibly surprising and i won't say i love this movie by any means but i agree with you completely that if only this had been the braver choice if only they had pushed with their own instincts from this film to, to bring us something new. Sure. I think there is kind of another path they could have gone down of maybe, and we'll talk about the character of Corey Cunningham, obviously in greater depth in a, in a moment, mm. but having him sort of maybe interweaved in the first two installments, you know, having, so we had mm. a through line with the character, except, you know, we had this new, character who we're going to spend a lot of time with but that's not what people were expecting and i do honestly believe that mm. and you know the the opening scene of this movie let's talk about the opening scene in a moment and then we'll yes. talk about the opening credits because in the opening credits we have the blue font um for halloween which is obviously the same 
font mm-hmm. and color that they used in Halloween 3 season of the witch. So I think that they were messing with us from the very beginning anyway. Yes. Hinting that this film had nothing to do with, you know, the previous films and Michael Myers because there was a point where I leant mm-hmm. over because I, I I've seen all three of these films in the cinema with my friend Hannah and I did lean over to her and I said, "I actually think that Michael might not be in this film." Like half an hour in. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was very strange. Anyway, let's go back to the beginning of Halloween Ends. What what did you think of the initial setup? So we have Corey Cunningham in that house, babysitting the young boy, and then chaos ensues. What did you think about that sort of cold opening? Well, I actually was so excited. I felt really electrified by what was sort of happening as it unfurled with the mother explaining, you know, the young boy having trouble after what had happened with Michael in the town and talking to himself or saying he hears voices and then having a male babysitter. Like there were just so many things where right away I was like, oh, shit. This is about to be different, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> um, I felt really good about just the scares and everything, how how good this Corey, the actor who plays Corey, is at, at carrying a lot of fear for us, especially in this open, was a kind of suspense I felt like the first two kind of lost sight of because they were really into the violence. So I this open for me made me feel like, okay, this is about to be really good. Were you thinking the same thing when you saw these changes or how did the changes, you know, after the font giving you your initial instinct, how did the changes make you feel? So in the in the opening sequence, I did think to begin with that with the mum explaining about the boy having sort of been scarred a little bit by the events in the, from the previous film and being a young boy, I thought we might get a young killer. I thought this this young child might actually be the one that turns and we, we were going to get a sort of, you know, point of view of the young boy and he was going to murder his babysitter. You know, I thought we were going to get a bit of a rerun of the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did really enjoy the fact that we were introduced to these characters. They were quite well-rounded to begin with. And you learned so much about Corey Cunningham in those first few scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, his aspirations of college, you know, he's, he was a really bright guy. He had a really strong future ahead of him. So I think that we Sweet. got to learn so much about him. And then as the story unraveled, you know, you know, you had the young boy who was kind of very disrespectful to him and he was mm-hmm. a bit very disrespectful to the rules, you know, yep. and quite kind of sort of foreshadowing the Laurie uh, relationship with Tommy a little bit. And then, you know, the incident happens where, you know, he accidentally kills the boy. And that is the moment that, the moment his life is over, really. It's true. It's true. I have to take a lot of deep breaths because this movie, this open in particular, really, like I said, it was electrifying for me because it had me guessing in ways I did not anticipate I'd need to show up and be ready to do. And the amazing shock of a child being the opening kill to a horror movie is really cool because I, I feel like undercurrents comment on the fact that like it's actually always children that are killed in these movies. They're teenagers, so we don't look at them like they're children, but they're children. And straight out of the gate, here goes a little kid. And oh man, I just felt like, yes, now they're 
crazy violence and offbeat style has coincided with this franchise. It's finally happened. Sadly, third movie in, but I felt like the that open was the culmination of what we had, you know, what they could do. Of course, and like you were saying about a child being murdered, you know, they had to kind of go hard with that because, you know, we had to have something devastating and terrible for the town to turn against this boy um, right. in a most visceral way. And what's that, what the way that that can happen is the death of a child. And, you know, even though it was an accident and then, and Corey ended up sort of, you know, getting a, I don't know whether he got a suspended sentence or he, yeah, he I don't was know what like, happened there. yeah, mm-hmm. that was very glossed over. I thought, which is, was a bit of a mistake because I would have liked to have known a little bit more about what happened directly after the court case. Was he freed, you know, right. free of, you know, free of a conviction or was there a conviction there? I wasn't quite sure. What did you think? I think, I think to your point of wishing that Corey had been a part of this story a little bit more, I think there are several pieces of this film that just hammer that point, because this is a great example. Like, I kind of wish that this had actually happened much longer ago, that Corey was supposed to only be maybe like 14 when this happened, so that when we come back and he's now almost a man about to be, you know, 10 years after this event himself, there could be a little bit more going on. Allison would have had more time to be so down to fuck this kid because it's insane how quick <laughs> their romance goes. And there's something, I, I feel like I wish there was a little bit more time so that a lot of these things would make would make more sense. And no wonder the town is so pissed at this kid. It's only been like a couple of years. It feels It feels all like a little too rushed for me. Sure, I think that it would have been great if we'd had you know obviously they the child was scared and disturbed by you know what had happened with michael myers so there had to be that sort of kind of time limit but you know they they didn't necessarily have to tie that into the story it could be the Mm. child just has nightmares for another reason or you know maybe there's you know maybe they've watched a scary movie that has disturbed them they didn't have to tie michael into that opening sequence but um, and it right. could have happened ten years ago. I agree with you there. Exactly. That would have made it a lot more interesting. Well, it just would have given the character of Corey a little more substance, and I feel like they ask so much of that character and the actor to to get all that into this movie because I feel like he's really really impressive in what he's able to capture and try to to give to this story because he had no time. It just feels. It just all feels so rushed because we're not, we didn't have this seed, right? Like a flower has burst out, but we never got the seed. <laughs> yes. And really I think strange that, to think this could even exist in the universe they created. And I do think that li- that leads to the fact of what we were saying, that this should have been the first installment mm. because they could have really have explored the relationship that Corey has with the town and they could have had mm-hmm. that blossoming relationship with Allison, you know, like he could have, you know, be, have been at the prom, you know, or that part of that Halloween mm-hmm. party that they had at the school in the first one. You know, he could have maybe have been there and, you know, there could have been something between them in those scenes. Yes. You know, there's 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 so many missed opportunities. I do I do feel like this film was the rise of Skywalker in the Star Wars saga where they got to the mm-hmm. end and they were like, oh, my goodness, we're going we're gonna to have to finish this thing. How are we going to do it? It was a little bit more planned out than that, I think. 
But um, you're mm. right. And I'm looking forward if they do a physical media release, whether they're going to do an extended edition, which is going to have a lot mm -hmm. of missing scenes, because that is what I think. I don't think that they went into the story and thought we're going to we're just going to gloss over a lot of this because we want to get down to the nitty gritty. I think right. that there was probably a lot of material filmed that they just had to leave out to make this film, you know, cut down to the time limit that the studio wanted. Totally. Exactly, right? They had to do so much. They only have so much time because I feel like the studio seemed like its belt got tighter each time. After the first one, it seemed like the second one must have had way too many hands in it because it just started to get really clunky. And then even this one feels really clunky where sometimes I can tell that it's absolutely their authentic material because their writing is really hard to miss. It's incredibly unique and it's most yeah. of the time, in my opinion, casting dependent. Like the right actor has to interpret their writing David Mamet style. Otherwise, it comes off really inauthentic. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like there are several times where I could point directly to a line in this movie where I'm like, that actor, this child actor cannot deliver that line. You should have rewrote it for him. He cannot yeah. deliver it for you the way you want it. And I feel like you can tell that somebody else is touching because the movie is not succinct like that, where the, sometimes the dialogue feels really tender and that doesn't really match the other stuff that tries to still be crass, tries to still be rough around the edges. It's just so mm -hmm. weird to see, I guess, like to see the the strange uh, juxtaposition that's occurring throughout this entire franchise now that we have this third one. It's just so much better than the other two. I hate that it's third. I hate that I don't get two more of this uh, situation. I know I agree with you. I agree with you, Big John. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you were talking about, you know, the character writing for the the right actor i feel like they did a lot of that in halloween kills you know with the big john little john you know yes. kind of even though it is feels really out of place you can kind of see the very unique style that those writers have in those characters so therefore it feels authentic mm -hmm. even though it, if it, it even though it feels like disjointed from a halloween movie it's authentic and and acted you know in a way that was stylistic and for those actors um right. there's a lot in this film that just feels clunky i mean there's lines yes. that were said that made the audience burst out laughing and i was actually really sad because i'm like no you shouldn't be laughing there like when the dad right. says to Corey, i hope you find love and you're like oh that's a really nice line but the way it was done was like so yeah. cheesy <laughs> I mean, I know that that wasn't them, right? Like they would never write that line to try to show a father or a stepfather wishing that a kid he loves could find happiness, like hoping that someday he, it's shit's gonna work out is much closer to what they would have written. And it, like, that's where I feel like the studio is coming in being like, write some relationships. Like we need something sweet, just giving notes that have, that are the reason why this franchise, you know, is not all the hype that it deserved to have. Well, my opinion on that scene was that they had something written, which was really touching and heartfelt that probably was a couple of pages long. And then the studio mm. came in, read it and went, no, 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 it's slowing the film down. Just do it in one line. I hope you find love. There you go. <laughs> I wish they, 
I wish they would have given us that whole scene and just cut out the entire role of the hundred-year-old police officer Alan uh, Allison was supposedly dating. Remember uh, this the introduction of this guy? I mean, like, you know, fine, we need people to kill, right? There's got to be a group of folks here just so we can kill peeps. But this guy, the fact that they wanted me to buy that for a second was yeah. seemed really rude. <laughs> it just seemed like a rude thing. <laughs> I mean, I think there was some kind of underlining um, issue-based reason for him being in the film. Like, you know, having that kind of character who is not obsessing, but is very... You know the boundaries are very loose with the characters, so when he's mm-hmm. in the um, the diner, which I actually think is actually quite a good scene, um, mm. you know, and he's and he's talking to Alison like she is his object, his possession, you know, yeah. and I do actually think that that holds a lot of weight uh, for character development. But then the next scene is him going down into a sewer and getting massacred. So. Well, that, that was the end of that then. If only it wasn't 100 years old. Like, I have <laughs> so much room for this dynamic of Allison has been through a lot. She's going to seek someone who can make her feel safe and protect her. And I think that's, again, like what I'm with you. I really want to hear David Gordon Green speak more about what happened. Because to the your point about the doctor in the first one and, and what that character could have represented, I kind of feel the same way with like a fair amount of the archetypes we got here. Where like the character of the cop doesn't really get to be fleshed out. He is so random in terms of the casting. I feel bad because I'm sure that guy like is a great guy, but just not not meant to be the weird Gen Z kids, like all stuff that feels so half-baked that I want more of. Like I want three movies where this next round of kids gets tortured because they yeah. started out so strong. <laughs> and no, it absolutely. just feels like there was something, there were seeds in all these people, but they never got fleshed out, including the cop. Because I like, I like what you're saying. I wish there was more attention put into that. I honestly do think that there was more concentration on the issue base and the underlining context of those scenes rather than the characterization which is actually really sad because i think with that character you know we you could go into a whole sort of you know whole spiel about allison needing to feel protected after what she'd been through and her Mm -hmm. you know from her experiences you know did she go off the rails a little bit when she might have started dating that police officer or was there some kind of attachment issue to her wanting to be with an authoritative figure because that equals for her an extra layer of protection there's so much there but of -hmm. course you can only go to it if you analyze after but Right. You know, show don't show don't tell show don't tell you know i mean if, if only he was like hot and actually could have looked like because i guess what i expected there was like maybe a little bit more of of the kind of character they're real good at writing on their tv shows who's like a guy that's really stupid hot like very attractive but total idiot and absolutely the kind of person you'd expect in a small town to think he was in charge of everything and I feel mm-hmm. like there would have been more spoken with that kind of character in this dynamic, but that's okay. Cause I feel like I'm sure there's something to like her choosing someone who's maybe more like a, you know, her dad's age or something. I mean, her dad is murdered too. I, 
it's just, I feel like I wish that there was more empathetic thinking about the characters across the board here, because they're all just very superficially tended to, to your point about, I hope you find love. <laughs> just very <Yeah>. superficial. <laughs> it is superficial. And I, I do believe, again, that that police officer was there just as a tokenism, you know, mm-hmm. here's another issue we're throwing into this film you know abusive coercive relationships here's like a little just a flashpoint but we're not going to give you any more of that and now we're just going to use him and you know they do this a lot they introduce characters they 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 turn them into dickheads and then (laughs) you know they kill them off in a horrible way and i do think that in the filmmaker or the producer or the studio's thinking behind that is make a character grotesque and then kill them off. The audience will get some pleasure from that. But what they don't understand is that you don't get pleasure because all you're seeing is a very generic cardboard cutout end up dead. But if it's a fleshed out character and we had extra layers and we actually got to know how that character ticks, the death Mm -hmm. is going to be more affecting Mm -hmm. for us. Yes. Oh, I love talking with you. This is exactly <laughs> this is exactly what my heart is feeling in these moments, especially because I, in this film in particular, I feel like they got the closest. And so it is really disappointing when rather than getting a little bit, you know, something a little deeper, something a little bit more meaningful, just like with the nurse and the doctor, we get the most superficial version of, of a nurse who is, you know, sleeping with a doctor for advancement and a grotesque doctor who is sleeping with a young nurse, you know, abusing his power. Of course, that's a real dynamic that exists, but it's just so superficial here and completely wasted, just like the cop, you know, like she became a nurse. There is something behind that, her desire to help people, but we don't have time for that because we're going to go watch this couple get murdered for for being who they are, even though, let's talk about that scene as a transformative one for Corey. Mm-hmm. How, how yeah, did you no, feel about, so yeah, like the transition from us getting to know Corey and what's happened to him in the town to what he's becoming through these events? I think, I think to discuss that, we really need to talk about a character in the film and that character is Hattonfield. You know, that mm. that town has always been a really strong character in the franchise. You know, the yes. the atmosphere, the the scenery, the the mood of the town has always reflected in, you know, what we're seeing on the screen. And I think that we kind of get a little bit of a montage about how after Michael Myers disappeared, the town sort of descended into a little bit of chaos. People were taking their own lives. Um, Mm -hmm. So my perception of of that transition for Corey, I almost thought a little bit that after Michael Myers disappeared, the town not only went through post-traumatic stress, but also went Mm -hmm. through a a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, where they had Mm. michael myers and they had something to be scared of there was the boogeyman they were very clear about who that was that was michael myers and after michael myers disappeared they were kind of in a wilderness of channeling their anger and they they in the film they use laurie a little bit to channel that frustration and anger but they concentrate it more i think on cody and and, um on corey Corey, sorry, I thought Cody then. Corey Cunningham's character, you know, <laughs> they need him to be um, 
they need him they actually need him to be mm-hmm. a, a focus point of their hatred and fear and anger and you know when you are that person when you when you've actually witnessed and been through an act that he did you know killing that child by accident he actually lived through mm-hmm. that we don't know what happened in the meantime but when you've right. got the whole town channeling their hatred and their and their fear that's fear. not even necessarily his his um burden to carry you know he's carrying the burden of Hattonfield because he is the next focus point of their fear and hatred um, because yeah. Michael's not around anymore. So he's I mean, almost I like, like a receptor. Even... Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, I feel like he even gets to represent their dissatisfaction with their own lives because it also feels like their whole identity is Michael Myers and without him, they need something else. Like that does feel like a strong note in this story that all of them feel like their lives are not going the way they want and they want to blame Michael Myers for that. So by proxy, they start blaming Corey for that. Exactly. And the thing that sort of struck me a little bit strange with his story was obviously the act happened. There was probably a trial. There was probably discussion after. And yet he stayed Mm. in Hanfield. If anything, you would have got the hell out of there, you know? But I think that, you know, I just get the feeling with his parent or his mother, especially, who was a very, you know, possessive and strange parenting text that they had. Um, <laughs> I feel like he was contained and kept in Hattonfield for that reason, for the town mm-hmm. to be a focal point of their of their hatred. And I, I just right. think that he was never going to get out of there. And he, he's like... He's like the stereotype that every town needs to to sort of function. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's there's people in every town that people, you know, they judge them as the crazy or the or the village idiot we have here in the UK. Or, you know, they label people in their society and that that, that sort of comforts people. And I think that they Mm -hmm. sort of had the same thing with him, that they they labeled him, you know, like the danger, the the, the killer, Mm -hmm. the, the the outsider. And I think that Hattonfield kind of needed that to feel safe because they had their eyes on him the whole time, you know? Whereas Michael is lurking. Michael is lurking around. Michael could be anywhere. But Corey Cunningham is there in plain sight and they could keep their eye on him. And I think that was almost like a comfort blanket for them. Yes, yes. And there's also something to how this film wanted to also try and, and... show what what it takes to make someone a killer that not every person is just evil and just kills because they're evil and they have some sort of drive in them that you know there are other there are other kinds of danger just like you're saying there are killers in plain sight and it's easy to just decide evil is the only thing we should be afraid of and i feel like it's a it's a good indictment of like a town that mistreats somebody that they want to blame somebody they want somebody to be to blame but they're never looking in the mirror they're never thinking about what they do in response to these things and how their behavior contributes to this stuff and of course and a phrase that kind of pops into my head whilst i was watching this film especially when you found out what happened to to Corey after the trial and everything was, you know, mm-hmm. it takes a village to raise a child. But what if the village, it turns a 
you know, what if the village turns against that child? And then what situation are you in? So if it takes a village to raise a child, but they're raising it in a way that they are fearful and, you know, and they persecute, that child Mm -hmm. is then going to grow up into Corey Cunningham, who, you know, I mean, let's talk about the transition from the point of view of when he meets Michael for the first time. Mm. Yes. Yes. What's what's your, what happened? I mean, I guess what was confusing to me and here is where like right before this happens, as we're headed towards the transition, the film is basically walking away from me. (laughs) It starts Mm. and it has me in the palm of its hand. And then it begins walking away from me slowly, kind of with each scene as it gets less and less, maybe um, concrete about what's happening with Corey and it sort of tries to keep the Lori stuff going. And I, I just have been very dissatisfied with the Lori stuff for a while. So it felt really strange where I couldn't grasp whether or not Michael was even alive anymore. So when we are finally confronted with Corey and Michael and them become, feeling a connection of some kind, I, didn't, I couldn't tell if it was supernatural. You know, when he first grabs Corey, he sees, like, the experience Corey had, or at least that's what the filmmaking kind of made me believe. And so then I'm like, okay, so is Corey just having, like, a psychotic episode? He's hit his head. He has wandered into a sore. He has not definitely not been sleeping lately. Like, I thought maybe they were taking me down this idea of, like, if the evil of Michael Myers existed and could have been cultivated the same way, now it's embodying Corey and it'll be like his turn. I don't know. I felt really confused about the transition. I liked where it ended up, but I didn't like the weird mishandling of it, or I guess my opinion of the weird mishandling. How did you feel about them coming together? Well, I didn't know really if that sort of, montage of Corey's experience was being experienced by Michael or by Corey, you know, whether he saw Michael Myers, uh, Corey, you know, saw him, you know, in his disheveled state and then was remembering that night because Michael had been mentioned to to him by the mother. So Mm. whether he was living that because the last time that he had kind of heard or had any experience about Michael Myers was on the night that he accidentally killed that boy. So I, it's from his perspective, whether that mm. all, all that rushing back to him, I didn't feel like it was a supernatural connection. I felt that, um, I, I felt like uh, it's, it's so difficult to put into words, isn't it? But I felt like Michael had this hold on the town and now mm. Corey was sort of, having interaction with him and Mm -hmm. seeing this disheveled, you know, guy, it almost gave Corey a little bit of a um, objective, Mm -hmm. you know, to Mm -hmm. see Michael there. And it was a secret, you know, no one else knew Michael was there. It was almost like Michael had chosen him in some way. And he had this kind of, then an objective to go on and, and develop that killer side of him. Right, that's what confused me, is that like, 
were they trying to say Michael had an instinct about him? So I guess I got confused just about what all that meant because it felt like Corey also was like, did Michael Myers let you live or did you get away? And that confused me too. I guess I just didn't understand like what they wanted me to think the connection was or what connection they were actually drawing because I like what you're saying too. And I guess that just goes back to like, I don't like that it's not, that there, it doesn't feel decisive. Even if it's not my guess, it doesn't feel like it was decisive for the filmmakers either. And I don't love when they just let it be ambiguous. I want them to have sure. made a choice too, <laughs> right? Sure. Well, I, it's either a choice by the filmmaker that was extremely clever to leave that open to interpretation or extremely dumb. So... <laughs> Again, the de- the decision is open to decision, which is very mm. annoying. And I understand that, you know, when it comes to a Halloween film, we want, as fans, we want something new. Mm-hmm. But it has to be on the terms of, it has to exist in the realms of, of, co- of being coherent and being mm-hmm. in some way realistic. So when yeah. you're, so when you're throwing out, you know, options of a supernatural connection or just, you know, something um, intrinsic intrinsic and giving Corey that objective, that kind of thing needs to kind of be a little bit clearer because otherwise Same. then you've got, you're splitting your audience into two and they're going down different paths mm-hmm. and, not, and neither of them two, you know, camps are going to be happy with the end when you're, when things aren't fully explained. But I honestly do think that it wasn't a supernatural connection. It was Corey who was going, having these really kind of deep emotions within him about, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the, a town that hates him and sort of a bit of an identity crisis. He's yes. being awoken. I mean, I suppose you could say it's no different really from someone who has those tendencies watching a show like, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix, you know, if that mm-hmm. could spark or awaken something in them that, you know, has laid slightly dormant and, and then goes on to them kind of experimenting or going on to kill someone, you know, yeah, yeah, that could, that could be the metaphor. Yeah. I mean, there are straight up uh, like mental health personality disorders that can be created based on paranoid personality. So there's something to how when a person is mentally sound, but then has to undergo the kind of abuse and mistreatment that Corey faces, you know, in the aftermath of the accident, there, there is some, there's just something more to this idea that like a fractured psyche can bring this forward. And I guess I agree. I just would have liked that to be more present because Dr. Loomis is a mental health professional. He, he's doing Michael a disservice by deciding he's just evil, but he <laughs> is a psychiatrist, you know, like psychology has always been a part of this too. And so I kind of wish there was a little bit more, just a little bit more decisiveness with Corey. Cause I, I love the performance of these things, like the moments and what's going on in his eyes and what he's trying to do. I found those to be really uh, fulfilling. I loved watching his expressions as he transformed and as he tried to find, you know, who he's going to be if these are the cards he's been dealt. No, absolutely. And, you know, thinking as well, it was kind of seeing Michael that sent him on his path to become a killer, but also seeing Michael that then developed his relationship with Alison, the whole, you know, let's burn it down kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, maybe he saw in Michael someone who actually he felt tried to do that, you know, break the rules, Ooh. burn it down. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe... maybe he thought to himself, you're maybe you're like me. Maybe you saw that this town is full is full of monsters and you were just, yeah. you know, getting rid of them. And yeah, I guess, I, again, I just wish it was more decisive because I like that there is more here than we thought. Absolutely. And you've got to think as well, you know, in any fiction or anything or even in real life, you know, the villain doesn't think that they're the villain. They right. believe themselves to be the good guy, no matter what their, you know, motivation is. That's you know, right. it, it's you could go like, you know, going into the Marvel Universe, Thanos clicking his fingers, wiping out half the universe. He was doing it for a, what he thought was a good reason. It's true. Um, you know, so there's villains out there that everyone thinks, you know, they're out and out bad. But, you know, when you're not living, that easy. it's not that easy. It's really not. And then when, you know, murder and killing people obviously is a no-no. But if you go then to um, Corey's point of view, he was actually really only killing people that had offended him or offended Alison. So in his yeah. way, it was, you know... It, going back to halloween five you know the revenge of this was actually the revenge of corey cunningham that's right that's right like again th those are my overarching issues with this space with this franchise is just that it it took pieces from the other films and wanted to pretend like it didn't and i would have had no problem with that in, in fact it's the greatest homage i feel like they they did so much paying of homage without wanting to say that's what it was that it kind of bums me out because i feel like we all could have been in it together so much more if we were allowed to lean on that stuff and if we were allowed to have included all that stuff in one way or another at least the awareness of it because the revenge of michael myers makes sense you know if he was really only after laurie and then the town had a beef i get it <laughs> yeah Absolutely. Do you think, here's a question for you, because we've spoken a lot about um, uh, Corey. I don't think there's really that much to say about Alison, to be honest, and we will be moving on to, to Laurie in a moment. But do you think that um, it was, it would have been actually more of a, a better way to go if they had kept the Laurie and Michael brother and sister storyline? Yeah, 1000%. Just because, like, they should have kept everything, even through H2O, in. Because it just doesn't make sense that Lori would hide in the woods for 40 years. And then her daughter would get murdered. And four years later, she'd be like, we're just moving into town now. I think I might write a book. Like, it just, <laughs> it's, it makes no sense in the grand scheme. And I think it would have been so much better if they had let these things continue. And if they had started here, then we really could have passed it to Allison in a meaningful way. Because we, again, would have two characters that are connected, you know, by something that is now out of their power. And that's kind of like the sibling dynamic you know, that exists initially. And what we would have could have had here is, you know, like an obsessive ex-boyfriend that is going to pursue her for the next two films because, you know, he has snapped already and it's too late. Sounds like a good film franchise to me. Although I will say keeping in <laughs> H2O would be slightly difficult seeing Michael does have his head chopped off. 
<laughs> so well, I mean, I think I could have I could have stood for the idea that which I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the uh, resurrection of Michael Myers, I think when they tried to be like, listen up, he had actually just planted a decoy and Laurie chopped sorry. some sorry, random guy's sorry. head off. Excuse me, what have you done with the real Shani B? Where's the real thing? What's happened? Like I said, I can, I'm can. i only going down this road because I think it would help them. You know, like if Lori had herself actually killed somebody by accident, right? Speaking to Corey Cunningham's experience in this film, if Lori had done that, I might buy that now she has to go be a recluse. I might buy that now, you know, her son wants nothing to do with her. She has a daughter somehow in this and now her daughter wants nothing to do with her. I could buy so much more of the Lori they they wanted me to think she was if or, they had left the franchise intact. Or Alison is actually John Strode's daughter. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. John has been killed. Yeah. And Alison was actually his daughter rather than bringing oh. in a whole new character. Wow, oh, man, if only you were in charge of these things, damn. <laughs> damn it. Because it's true, I feel like sadly, I don't like what happens with Laurie's character. And then I feel like Allison really gets, her character just doesn't really get to do much until even this film. You know, like she, I thought maybe she would come through as like the new Laurie Strode. She has such a wholesome girl next door kind of vibe. She's so sweet and cute. And she just kind of like has to be a side character because, you know, we can't let go of Laurie Strode, which is understandable. But the Laurie Strode we have is so clunky. She's so clunky mm. in this franchise. And she's, she seems to flip so quickly in this film. Like it just, the character of Laurie Strode really got lost here. And I feel like, maybe we could have just like let that go and had the character of Allison. <laughs> I know I agree with you in, in, in some ways I do. I do think that obviously Jamie Lee Curtis brings a whole lot of pathos to a film. So they kind of wanted totally. to have her in it, you know, a bit like they, like they did with <clears throat> resurrection, you know, having her. <laughs> I can't even say it. I can't even say I know. it. Uh, um, I know. I mean, that was just terrible, but um, no, I kind of agree with you. And so Alison, which about the love interest with Corey Cunningham and it being so rushed again uh, I just really want to gloss over this because I don't think it's an interesting part of the film at all but mm. I think that their sort of very fast blossoming love was due down to uh, the cutting room floor editing I do think there's probably real a whole reel of them actually getting to know each other and having a few more dates um, yeah I hope I, I the sex think... scene as well, because they were just like ramping it up and then we really didn't get a payoff for it. <laughs> there was, was, I mean, like she was so down and it just yeah. wasn't enough. <laughs> and no, exactly. And I, and I have to say as well that I don't think we, I've ever seen so many uh, motorcycle scenes in a film <laughs> outside of Easy Rider. You know, <laughs> it was like. It's true so much but there was one I, I have to mention this there was one uh scene that followed on so there's a scene of Corey cunningham with michael mm. and then the, it cuts directly to a scene of Corey on a bike with allison but for a split second my mind could not separate the two scenes and i thought that michael was on the back of the bike with Corey. <laughs> <laughs> He might as well have been. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it feels, 
it feels strange because something else I also when I like another idea I had when I watched this was I thought is he does he feel closer to Allison because he feels closer to Michael and Allison is also connected to Michael like I just thought there were there were like a lot of things that the more I thought about this movie the more I was like oh I want to know more about this or that or this and I feel like it's funny that that it's hard to separate these things because we just don't see enough of Allison to know it's her sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like she was pretty much in this film to carry Corey's story. And then maybe if they wanted to go off in a different direction for a new Halloween film, at least they've got her as a stock character that people know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in yeah the, she's in a the bridge. Right, she's been like a bridge to connect Corey and Lori, uh, which I can't believe I never realized their names rhyme, but um, (laughs) kind of like in the first uh, two where they wanted to, they thought it was compelling to have her have a daughter who wasn't in her life and a granddaughter who wanted to be, but we kind of lose that because their relationship is like so strange in this movie. And Mm. I just don't know what to make of it. And I, I guess I just feel bad about that because I like her so much and I hope she gets to do more after this. I'm sad this franchise wasn't more for her. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think Corey Cunningham and um, Alison, we have given so much time to. Mm-hmm. I think it's time to move on to the final girl herself, Laurie. And you've mentioned as well here that you didn't feel very satisfied with the characterization in this and the scenario that she is placed in. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a few scenes of hers that I found to be quite satisfying. Did you find any scenes in it that you felt, oh, hang on a minute. They seem to have got a bit of a handle of her here. I don't know. Sadly, Laurie feels really alienating to me in this franchise. And it kind of just makes me feel a little bit sad a lot of the time, just because it feels it just feels strange to me seeing I guess seeing this transformation be so extreme like I think the one scene that I found to be the most like confusing was I guess when she was trying to encourage uh Allison to to explore a relationship with Corey and was like you know you want someone who makes you want to take your tits out you know she just like was so brazen and so open in a way where I was like again I want this out of Laurie Strode I just this is so random out of a Laurie Strode who was hiding in the woods for 40 years, whose daughter has only been dead for four years. And not only that, it feels very disconnected to the Laurie Strode of 1978. Ooh, way far away. Cause if we remember correctly, she was, everybody was teasing her about being a prude. Yeah. She could have only maybe had sex like one time, uh, given the way they made this story, because she happens to have a daughter, but she's been living alone for years and years. Absolutely. I must say that I did really like the scene of her in the the grocery store with, you know, with the yeah. officer, with Frank. You know what? You're right. I, I missed, I underestimated that scene. That That is a sweet, that is a sweet scene. It's kind of a, I mean, it's a scene playing on, you know, the might have been. You don't know what really happened in that four years. You know, in Halloween Kills, it's almost set up as they are going to sort of become romantically involved. And then four years later, there might have been something, but it's not there. I think that's quite realistic. You know, when Mm. when people are thrown together in trauma 
and you know adrenaline like they were in Halloween Kills. So, sometimes after the uh, the morphine's worn off, the love is just not there anymore. That's a good point. I don't That's talk from point. personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> good, because I hope the love is still there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I guess I did like that, and maybe that is the one saving grace. I kind of wished there was a little more of a button for her because this this film really does feel like we have to let go of the character of Laurie Strode that like we'll probably get more Halloweens why wouldn't we we love Michael Myers but I don't know what we're going to be able to do with Laurie Strode as she is well, now especially Jamie Lee Curtis is for sure out I just don't I'm curious no. she's that completely out. apparently she's she's actually signed a contract to say that she will never appear as Laurie Strode on screen again. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> she That's amazing. She signed the contract for that. But I just want to give you a little snippet of a trivia moment from that scene in the grocery store. So the music playing in the background was an instrumental version of Don't Fear the Reaper, which is the song that is playing in the car with Annie and Laurie in the first film. Yes, and also peppered into so many horror films after paying homage. That's amazing. I gotta go. I'll have to pay attention for that next time. Yeah, good. I love that kind of sort of little homage. I love a little homage. Same. Very cool. So, going from Laurie trying to get Alison and Corey together to her being in a house leaning very strangely on the back of that chair, which stressed me out more than anything because. My teacher at school told me never to do that because you'll fall and hurt yourself. So she, Absolutely. I was way through that scene when she's leaning back on her chair. I was like, stop doing that. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. Um, yes. The turnaround in her. I mean, okay, here we go. So <laughs> we talked about the scene, the connection scene between Corey and Michael, but then we get the scene with Laurie and Corey where she looks into his eyes and senses something. What the <laughs> hell do you think that was all about? Exactly. Again, this is why I was like, what are they doing in between either something psychological or something supernatural where now Laurie can like see the evil in people's eyes and like everybody has noticed there's this change in his eyes. It just feels again super duper rushed because that turnaround is way too quick and Corey is well within his rights to be like you started this <laughs> you brought me to her yeah. right like it and also yeah. her the line where she's like you can't have her i i don't know what was up with that like who is Lori in the third act of this movie outside of like when she does turn badass and you know straight like pin the fool down and and really kill him hardcore this time so I agree. And I think um, something I wanted to mention earlier a little bit about Corey's character, you know, that kind of very slow change, that meeting of the monster and then the slow change happening. Um, <laughs> you've got Corey's surname as Cunningham, which is the same as Arnie Cunningham in John Carpenter film Christine, you know, and he's quite a geeky, mm. quiet guy in Christine. And then he encounters Christine, the, the demon car, and that completely kind of changes his personality and takes him down a route of, of death and evil, which is exactly pretty much the plot line of this film. So, yep. um, you know, there's that thing of, you know, I think, you know, I'm not saying that Laurie looked in to Corey Cullen's eyes and saw Christine, but 
there is that scene is uh, that needed to be clearer about what she's yes. drawing him. Was it, you know, the you know, you can kind of look at someone and see that they're not right. You know, whether they're, they're, mm-hmm. there's something going on behind the eyes, there's some there's something going on with that person. But you don't immediately go to, killer! They're a killer! <laughs> exactly. You know? so exactly. I found that very, very odd. And it, it was so quick. Way too quick. They, Everything. They needed the look and her to look at him and think there's something not right. And then there needed to be extra behaviours from him that was like, yep. and she would notice them and be like, oh, okay. Like, like you know, maybe him picking yep. up a knife in a very suggestive way or, you know, say, saying something that would be a, a hark back to like a previous film, you know, just yep. just something that, just a little bit extra, extra that would have made that a bit more believable because I didn't believe that at all. Exactly. Exactly. It just, it turns too quickly. It doesn't feel authentic. And that's where I just can't tell the difference between, you know, is it the studio or is it like a lack of, um, what's the word, uh, assertiveness in the storytelling? I'm not really sure, but it does, like, ultimately, if I have to sum up how I feel overall about this movie, I liked it better than the first two, but it everything we're talking about is the reason why I can't really say that I like, really like this movie. <laughs> You know? No, sure. No, I get that. Um, moving on with Laurie's character, we have then the scene where um, the final confrontation between her. Also, just to say, she is mm. writing this book. Um, the title of the book is a very strange one, isn't it? It's kind of like um, Stalkers, Saviors and Samhain, which is obviously the festival of Halloween, Samhain which is mentioned, I think, in previous installments of Halloween as being kind of the mm-hmm. reason why there's some evil going on with Michael. So nice touch, <laughs> but completely out of context. Thank you very much. Right. Um, so we'll get to the transition with her, with Corey, and and when that sort of ultimate scene comes on. I quite liked that dialogue uh, between them, you know, that final confrontation. I, I really liked the scene when he comes in and she's she's called in the suicide, and then mm. I honestly did think that she may have done it. What did you think? Uh, well, I guess I wasn't sure if she was going to do it or not, but I definitely was pissed when I was like, if she does this, it's next level. I'm going to hate every. I'm hating it if she does this shit. <laughs> but then I guess I did like that she turned that around. I liked that. She was using it for Corey because Michael is probably not going to fall for this sort of trap, but somebody like. Hello. Oh, can you hear me? My back. Yeah, Yeah, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked that she turned it around, but yeah, it was a, it was scary for a moment there. Did you, were you, yeah, you you said you thought that she was actually going to do it. I thought that she was going to do it and then Alison was going to come in and then we were going to get the real Michael and that all those scenes in the trailer were actually fake and we were going to get a fight between Alison and Michael. Oh, that would have been great. That would have been great. Yeah. yeah again, like I feel like Alison, she is left out here. Uh, also, it's strange that Michael, like... Again, you you speak of the peppering in of like possible suggestions to evil, 
And it does feel like when Michael finally kills the cop, he is powering up because by the end, he's, you know, throwing Lori all around again. And when we see him initially, he's like an old, he's like old Michael who could barely do shit. He's not even strong enough to kill Corey. So I guess like that's another thing that kind of confuses me about the final culmination too, is that like, how did he get so strong all of a sudden? Is he being replenished from killing? Like, what does any of it mean? <laughs> yeah, I I got the the replenished from killing. I don't think that was a supernatural element. I just felt like, you know, killing made him, killing gave him a purpose. He had no purpose down there eating rats. Mm. And then he's like, eh, eh, eh. and then I have, I now have my purpose back. Got it. Okay, so it's just a little bit more of a straightforward, like, when he has the drive, when he feels like he can make a difference via killing, he's good mm-hmm. to go. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe there is any supernatural with that. Because we're giving so much to um, to have to sort of think about Michael being a supernatural entity to being a human entity and in this film we're very much steered towards him being a human right and therefore we had the scenes at the end with Laurie where you know he's repeatedly stabbed and you know pinned to the table and then throat slit and that is it you know and I think that that there's it's very murky with the first two films about whether Michael is a human or like the actual walking evil entity and I think what Halloween ends try to gloss over was that fact. And I think they did it with Laurie as well. You know, they glossed mm. over the fact that this was a trauma victim. And I can understand they were like, she was trying to move on with her life. Um, staying in the same town is really weird, but she's trying to move on with her life. And um, that final scene with, I mean, I'm gutted that they actually did kill him off because that could have been a perfect way to carry on the franchise, but yeah, strange, but <laughs> Ultimately, Laurie, you know, there was a, a very hairy moment where we did think that Laurie was going to get murdered by Michael when he reaches out and grabs her by the throat, and then she's saved by Allison. So we got to that point. The character then sort of reverts back to survival mode, Laurie. Mm-hmm. But let's, um, because we are running out of time, let's get that quickly to the end scene with the uh, possession of past characters minus um Lindsay who literally just popped up every now and again in the film but there wasn't even there for the final end which was totally wasted totally wasted but what did you think about that sort of element of I mean mean, the legality of it is complete nonsense because they would never (laughs) be able to do that seriously yeah I I thought it kind of started to get it crossed into the kind of camp that I which is why I didn't like, you know, this franchise as a whole is that every time it was close to being grounded, you know, slicing his throat, slitting his wrist, doing everything humanly possible to kill a human, they still have to like take him through the town and show everybody and put him in a meat grinder. Like it's just, so it's a kind of overkill that is unrealistic ultimately, I feel like. Yeah. And there's this kind of element of like the police being, you know, sort of in on it and the corruption cool there. I mean, that, that's what they that they try to lean very heavily on that with in Halloween Kills you know like the police corruption the police being very mm-hmm. inept at their jobs and here they're just blatantly letting townsfolk mince people up <laughs> I mean yeah it's a very a slippery slope isn't it what happens <laughs> it when sure little, 
little Johnny steals a loaf of bread from the local grocery store. Are they going to put him in the mincer? You know, what? what next? Seriously. It's, it's very... just, yeah, the, the way they leave us, because this ends up being the third, is just strange. It doesn't feel very complete. It doesn't feel closed. It doesn't feel like they started something and finished it. And but so... then we did have the mask left on the table. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's got to be symbolic, surely. I mean, I think that's that is what I mean when I say we'll definitely get another Michael avatar back. Like we're gonna see Michael Myers again because we need to. We love him. We're never we can't get rid of him. But I guess I just feel a little dissatisfied with the possibility that we had a transition and then we didn't really make it because I loved when Corey wore the scarecrow mask. And mm -hmm. frankly, I just wanted that to be Corey's mask because if he wasn't gonna truly ever become Michael then why did he have to steal Michael's mask? Why not be Corey, you know? I think that there was an element there which was lost that we didn't know whether in those murder scenes it was Michael or Corey, but I think that they they tried to make it, I think this might have been studio interference, where they tried to make mm. it clear that it's Corey killing these people, um, whereas actually it would have been better if, we, if it was ambiguous whether it was Michael mm. Corey, and at the end we find out it was Corey. I think that would have been a nice, neat little shock. Um, yep. But, uh, okay, so the mask is left on the table at the end. Um, we I just want to give Reader a very quick statement here. So producer Jason Blum reiterated <laughs> that while it would not be the final film in the franchise, it will be the last Halloween movie under Bloomhouse, or with the rights ah. of the film series reverting to the producer Malak Card following the release right. of Ends. So when Akkad himself was asked about the future of the franchise after Ends, he half-jokingly quoted his late father, like, late, his late father, Mustafa Akkad, who has always quoted the series star Donald Pleasance. When asked how many Halloween movies he was going to make, Pleasance laughed and said, I'm going to stop at 22. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I think if Donald Pleasance um, was immortal, he'd, he would have been in Halloween Ends. I would have loved it. I would have loved it <laughs> because, again, the canon would have been protected. I just want the canon to be protected in some way. Sure. And I don't know if that means, you know, doing like what Rob Zombie did and just like reimagining but, but staying true to the canon or if it means trying to figure out a way to come at it from a new angle like you suggested. I mean, I love the idea of expanding the universes to include the other people who would be affected by these things. And they did a, a taste of that in, you know, trying to transition this franchise, but there's so much more there. So we'll see what the Akkad family does. I love that they're the broccolis of Michael Myers. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's Absolutely. so good. Well, if I could just throw this out to you quickly, what about, would you be adverse to the fact of the Halloween films from now on featuring Michael Myers as period films, i.e. set in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s? Whoa, I hadn't even thought of that, and absolutely. Wow, that sounds amazing. I would love that, actually, because I love a good period piece. Sure. I mean, having, I think, ha I mean, for me, I'm just going to throw this out very quickly, but out of the three films, my favourite sequence is the 1978 sequence from Halloween Kills. Mm, exactly. It's so good, right? It it's has so all the things good. you want. Yeah, yeah, you're so right about that. 
Ooh, so maybe make, there's something make to that. Film like that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, I'd love it. So out of five pumpkins, how many pumpkins would you give Halloween ends? I'll give Halloween ends three pumpkins. I'll go straight down that. the middle. Three pumpkins I'm for me. What about you? Exactly the same. I would have given it three pumpkins for sure. So your prediction was correct. We mostly fell along the same lines here. We did. I love it when a plan comes together. Oh, same. Oh, <laughs> This has been so incredibly lovely. I'm so excited that we are back together talking about movies and horror movies. Ah, oh, it's a dream. It is a dream. And we're going to be back very soon, listeners, with some extra treats for you. So please do have a look um, wherever you get your podcasts and just check our schedules and you will find me and Shani B back together very, very soon. <laughs> yes. Hello Not guys, welcome. Bit. We finally made it. We are here for the UK's most controversial TV show ever. We have really slightly excited. delayed. I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. So acknowledgements to be made first. This was slightly delayed, but hopefully it'll be worth the wait. Because oh, yeah. this is this is something that I've has lived rent-free in my head since October the 31st, 1992. And back then, I was eight years old. And do you know what? Like, at least to me, the fear that, that, uh, that about the program that we're going to talk about today has not dissipated at all. So hopefully, mm-hmm. it'll be worth the wait. Oh, it's definitely going to be worth the wait. And I have a very, very strong experience with this show. Also, um, I will literally just put it on the line now as a little uh, taster that I didn't um, sleep. Uh, with the light off for about two weeks after I saw this show. Okay, you and me both. So I will see to your not sleep, uh, turn the lights off, and I will raise you sleeping on my left hand, left side, so I could face the wall and not face the corner of my room because I was always afraid of who might be standing there, just like who was standing in the bedroom of the program we're about to talk about. Yeah. So. I, will, I, mean, I refuse to go downstairs. I will I raise you sleeping <laughs> facing the wall to having to sleep in your parents' bed for about three <laughs> nights. Do you know, like, I think, I'll tell you, the experiences that, that you and I are talking about, I think um, the listeners will soon realise, actually fade into comparison based on some of the stories that in subsequent weeks after this, this programme was released. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some of the things that uh, the UK had to deal with as a nation because of this program. Uh, yeah. It's, yes. It's, I, the I think we got away quite much, lucky. Yeah, we did. The nation pretty much had to deal with uh, post-traumatic stress after this program. Like a lot of people, you know, it was a very, very, very serious uh, event that led to, to death for some people. Yeah. You know, we're going to go all into this, guys. We're going to go into this. A TV show that was meant to be a piece of entertainment led to two people's death. Yeah, and led to multiple uh, mental health um, uh, complaints of mental health issues. Uh, Multiple people uh, became agoraphobic. They couldn't leave their homes. But um, 
just the fact, Keith, that you and I are sitting here this year, 2021, still discussing this. And I must say that, you know, it's talking about this in the Instagram groups that, 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 that are behind the scenes in stereo, causing quite a stir. Um, it just shows mm-hmm. how much of an impact this has had in society, right, in our culture. So there we Absolutely. go. So do we reveal the title of this show that we are talking about? I'll, leave, I'll uh, let you do the honours. Okay, so let me, so I'll, okay, I'll reveal the title. Let me take everyone's minds back, and some of you may know this, and if you do know the programme that we're talking about, then just let us know via claps. But for everyone else, Halloween of 1992, October 31st, um, the BBC had talked about going broadcasting live from one of the UK's most haunted houses. And there was a big press campaign, and you know, the newspapers talked about this house just somewhere, I believe it was outside of London, not entirely sure where, but and where there was this very lovely family, you know, this mother and her two daughters, um, single parent household. Um, they were living, um, not rich, average people. And these, this family was being tormented by, you know, a poltergeist, a ghost of some sort. And as we read about this in the papers in the run up to October 31st, I think most people did what most people would do and kind of didn't really bat an eyelid, just one of those one of those stories, I guess. And then mm-hmm. came October 31st and we all turned on our TVs on the BBC, uh, credible channel, uh, and watched a programme which starred a very, very credible uh, set of broadcasters. Michael Parkinson, mm-hmm. Sarah Green, mm-hmm. Craig Charles, and Sarah Green's husband, Mike Smith, who all at their time were very credible uh, broadcasters, right? So a huge Not actors. I think it's important to stress they were not actors. They were TV presenters. They you were know, TV that's, presenters. That's and, very important. And very serious ones. I mean, like Craig Charles was an actor, but, you know, uh, Michael, take Michael Parkinson. Uh, hugely serious, hugely credible, uh, and definitely not an actor. And then the programme began, and for the rest of the night... The entire nation witnessed the most bizarre paranormal activity live from this this home, and the most traumatic series of events occurred. And this program, mm-hmm. of course, was Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch. Yeah, that was a great dun, dun, introduction. Dun, dun. Uh, Thank you. Great introduction. Yes, yeah, so Ghost Watch um, was a British sort of reality horror like pseudo-documentary television film. It was, first, it was broadcast, as Ray J said, on Halloween night on BBC One in 1992. And it was written by Stephen Volk. Now, Stephen Volk um, didn't work much again after Ghostwatch, but did do a really interesting um, documentary series um, about Ghostwatch. They, there was a, a short documentary. I think I sent that to you to watch. You can watch it on YouTube. And also he's written for audio uh, ghost stories, such as the Hammer Horror selection. So he's never really left that ghost story medium behind. And no. um, the drama was produced for the BBC um, for, as a Screen One, which was um, sort of a drama series, like a sort of anthology series. The Screen One was like this sort of overarching title. And then every week they'd show a different drama. So it wasn't like the audience weren't used to the Screen One format of, 
you know, a, a hard hit in drama. Um, mm. But what the mistake that I think um, they made with Ghostwatch was A, they put it on Halloween night. Genius. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Genius. Oh, yeah. Second, secondly, they cast, like you said, renowned TV presenters that mm-hmm. were not known as actors. I mean, Sarah Green, for goodness sake, was presenting Going Live, a kids' TV morning show on Saturday mornings. At this That's point. right. That's right. And, you know? Uh, and there was, a, I mean, you and I were kids watching this, and there, were, there was a whole nation of children who thought that one of their favourite TV presenters was going through the ordeal that no doubt we'll talk about in this live. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um... And I think what what else really added to it was that the BBC, when they commissioned Ghostwatch, commissioned it on the bravado that there were warnings Mm -hmm. given to tell the people that this was a drama. This was not a documentary. This was not live. This was a drama. But the problem was that the warnings were given out in... Um, things like the Radio Times, because mm-hmm. we're in the Radio Times. It even had a cast list. It even had the ghost played by Bom 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 in the in the Radio Times. Um, but there was no blatant warning at the beginning of the show. They only said Screen One. Now I know that Screen One was quite um, you know a popular thing at that time. But if you were a casual viewer timing into this show on Halloween night knowing that it's about a haunted house and didn't know the screen one format, then you would probably be misled by the fact that you weren't told it was a drama from the beginning. And And that opening monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, did you know it? The opening monologue? Yeah. Um, You do, don't you? I don't, but I was going to Google it if you you don't know it, because it's really worth listening to. So I'm hoping you know it. Um, oh God, this is something that I should have had up. Um, I'm going to Google it. You, you go. So, okay. um, tell us so, a little bit about like, how, you, how did you get to watch this? I mean, how old okay. were you at the time and what did you, what, how did you come to watch it? So I was maybe around eight or nine years old. Um, and I actually got to know about Ghostwatch like most people did. And following on from what you were saying, Keith. They talked about that this was a drama on the Radio Times and in very, very discreet sort of places. But just but most people found out about Ghostwatch because of viral sort of uh, person to person virality. People would pick up their phones and say, oh, my God, you need to watch what's going on BBC One. So bear in mind, most people like myself, I started watching because we received a phone call um, that you need to watch what's happening on BBC One. And we then did what I think most people did, picked up the phone and told other people about it. So this began uh, with just a fam- just me and my family sitting down watching, you know, Halloween-y movies. And I think it's fair to say we probably shouldn't have been watching these sorts of uh, programmes as, as, as a child. But there we go. And from the very, very first scene, the camera opened to a scene of two girls in their bedroom, maybe about, I'm guessing, eight years old and 12 years old, there or thereabouts. Yeah. And it was, there mm-hmm. was a camera in the top, in the corner of their bedroom and was, was watching their room. And next thing you know, 
there was a huge amount of banging and the whole room was sort of shaking. And that's how the program began. So they set the tone really, really well. Next thing, the, the scene mm-hmm. cuts to a studio where you see Michael Parkinson, you know, famed for his serious interviews with personalities. And in, that immediately gave everyone the impression that this, what is happening here, is very, very real. And then... Would you like me to do the speech? Yes. Do you speech quickly? Okay. This is the dialogue <clears throat> that occurred just before the programme started. Now, look how cleverly it was written. The programme you're about to watch is a unique investigation into the supernatural, and it contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows, yet for the past 10 months, this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. Um, This Halloween night, uh, so so welcome live this Halloween night to the first ever TV ghost walk. Now, that in itself, to hear a, a BBC, you know, and we're talking about the normal BBC voice that says, and now on BBC One, it's time for question time. That's the voice we're talking about. Did that kind of monologue intro, which also mm-hmm. captured a lot of people's attention. Now, Keith, what's interesting about that monologue is that they very, very cleverly did not say whilst they did say that it was fiction. They implied, right, that, they, that this wasn't necessarily real. But they didn't explicitly say it. So a lot of people would miss that completely. Uh, and well, yeah. The, well, the first three lines are this program you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. So there's nothing in that that says, and it contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. I mean, there's nothing. They're, they're obviously warning you that, you know, some of the things that you might see or hear in the show could disturb you. But there's nothing to say that this isn't real. So did they mention that it was a drama at any point? Um, did, did I miss nope. that? Okay. No, nope. so... nothing, nothing in this. Because this is, remember, this is the opening of the actual, um, this is Michael Parkinson's speech. This is the, uh, oh, you're, did you want me to find the opening of like the BBC announcer or was it the Michael Parkinson? No, so, so the BBC announcer is what you just read out. And I think that's what, uh, okay, so that's okay. not how I, so, okay, so in my mind, I thought they were a bit cleverer than that. But, um, but even then, I think it's no surprise why the BBC to this day sort of refused to acknowledge this too loudly, the fact that this happened, because um, they, you know, they basically traumatised an entire nation. Now, maybe let's just talk about the after effects first, uh, and then we can talk about the programme itself. An entire generation of well, children... I... Go on. Yeah, I just, want, I just want to drop this little hint in here quickly. Uh, before we start with the aftermath. So you have to remember that the title is also very clever because what we have in the UK, uh, for people from the States listening, this is a bit of information for you, but we have a show in this country called Crime Watch, which is about, you know, TV footage, real-life investigations going on about crime. So to call it Ghost Watch, it's almost like the, um, the sort of the cousin the crime watch, you know, sort of that link there, which means trust to me. You know, when you're watching crime yeah. watch, you're having yeah. investigators, you're having presenters, you're having police officers come on and talk about crimes that have happened. You're seeing CCTV 
footage and investigations of these crimes. Well, to call them Ghostwatch and have a very similar format, to me, um, is another reason why I think so many people trusted this format and trusted the people involved because of that link to another show that is well um, respected. And, and, and it's real. It's based on facts. I think that's, that's very and true. real. They were subliminally telling, the, telling everyone that this is because just by virtue of the name, it's real. But um, we'll talk about the show and it'll be interesting to hear from, any, from the listeners what their experiences of Ghostwatch were. And if you have any questions about Ghostwatch, then do drop them in. But we're really talking about a program where the next morning um, there were a number of children who had PTSD, and this is diagnosed PTSD, although I'm pretty sure if I had, was taken to the doctor, I probably would also have had diagnosed, I would have been diagnosed with PTSD. We had elderly people who were too traumatised to leave their homes. And this is the impact that this programme actually had. They had. The BBC had the most amount, I don't know if you've got the number there, Keith, but the most amount of complaints they've ever had uh, in, their, in, in their history based on this programme. And I think really sadly, Keith, I'm sure you know, there was also somebody who um, died after watching this programme. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So um, the immediate aspect, I mean, you know, they did it really well. They set up this whole thing. There was a phone number that you could call, which actually sent you to a recorded message. Um, and yeah, the after effects were devastating. I mean, there was some, I mean someone committed suicide um over this program do you know what i mean it was that serious yeah so um and i think think it's important to say you know these these people that 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 passed away and um you know had the psychological effects of this it's a very 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 real thing um yeah so I, I don't want to like lessen anybody's like experiences and stuff by saying this in a way where it sounds fantastic. But, you know, this is this is one of the biggest like events in TV history. And no, not many people know about it. And the reason people don't know about it is because the BBC banned it for 10 years. It couldn't mm-hmm. be broadcast. on the t- I mean, it's still banned from broadcast. It mm-hmm. cannot be broadcast, but they banned it from 10 years to get from getting any physical media release yeah and then they, the only reason they the only reason they did release it on very very limited edition was they they realized that uh, thanks to the internet people were sharing sort of recorded copies of it so they released a, a very limited edition dvd uh which um they also stopped uh stopped selling out so it's very hard to get a hold of this uh sort of from official sources anyway so keith um Tell me what you remember of how Ghostwatch kicked in. Well, actually, for me, Ghostwatch was a bit of a practical joke from my older brother. My older brother's like seven years older than me. So when Ghostwatch was broadcast in 92, I would have been three years old. I would have been three years old. But uh, my brother, and this this is... like one of the things that I think is a, was a little bit of a virtue. My brother is paranormal, uh, ghost story, horror film mad. And when Love this it. thing like was advertised on the TV, obviously there were trailers during the week about this was going to happen. My brother was like jumping around, and um, 
we used to have a stack, like a massive stack of those Scotch VHS tapes by the TV that were mm-hmm. blank. So, like, if there was anything that, like, anyone wanted to watch, we just used to shove a, a VHS tape in it, record it, and it was, like, if we were off doing something else. Do you know what I mean? That's, like, right, how right, our right. family worked. Um, and then my brother did it to Ghostwatch. Like, he popped a VHS tape in and recorded it and watched it all the time, apparently. Like, because I've spoken to my brother about this. He was like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about Ghostwatch for ages. So when I was about five years old, mm-hmm. I think um, I think my brother was maybe babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> Great babysitter. And oh, um, sat me down and was like, oh, I wanna, I'm going to watch this. And I was like, oh, you know, like five-year-old Keith, what's this? Um, and it was Ghostwatch. And I watched it. And I Bloody never hell. got... Five years I old never Five years old, I never got past the bit where um, they played the voice recording. I freaked out. Apparently, according to my brother, I was screaming. I was on my knees. I was like, my hands, like oh, my face was dear. in my hands. I was crying. I was sobbing. My brother had to take me upstairs. I wouldn't let him like be left on my own. My parents came home and said, what the fudge happened and he said and he, and he told them and they were like obviously really angry with him you but ruined keith on... you ruined it you ruined yeah, my baby they broke me <laughs> and broke I, I had to sleep in my parents i had to sleep in my parents bed for two nights oh, do you know what i can believe that but let's let's put the let's put the voice the voice note that you're talking about uh, or the voicemail into context so yeah the set, just, the set just, up... um, yeah i just want to give a quick shout out guys i do moderate voice notes so if your voice notes aren't coming up that's because um, we, I have to approve them and I am approving them as I go along. So don't be discouraged if you leave a voice note and it doesn't show in the listeners. Um, it is there, I promise. But obviously, we're being very engaged at the moment. So, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, your voice messages will be heard. I promise. It Keith just it just gets rid power. of the um, it just gets rid of all the idiots, you know. Yeah. OK, no babies in this show. OK, so the setup of Ghostwatch. Let's start there. So there were three primary locations that Ghostwatch was based around. Of course, the, the, the primary location was the house itself. And the setup was that uh, Craig Charles, uh, also from, uh, what's he famous for? Uh, he's famous for um, Red, come on, you know. Red Dwarf. Sci-fi. Red Dwarf, thank you. Red Dwarf. Of Red, of Red Dwarf fame. And Sarah Green, mm-hmm. huge kids TV presenter, were basically talking to the camera. There's going to be cameramen going in outside the house with crowds, you know, from the neighbours kind of waving to the camera. Um, and they were they're spending the entire night in this, in this family's home. Then you have the studio. And the studio was set in the BBC, uh, BBC Centre uh, and it was split into two parts. You had one part with Michael Parkinson, who was running the show. And he would do his own, you know, his old parky style of interviews. He had special guests on experts, supernatural experts, history experts that he'd be interviewing. And the camera would pan between the house and, and Michael Parkinson. But then you also had on the side of the studio, the third area. And that was uh, run by Mike Smith, who also is Sarah Green's husband in real life. And he was manning a whole set of people. Well, he was uh, managing a whole set of people who were manning the phones. And the phone line uh, was open for the public to call him. And the, public and the, then... and the number was the number was 081 811 
which is the exact which number, was actually yeah yeah which is for going live it was a number for going live right which i, I don't know why. and live and kick in i don't know why more people didn't realize that but what was int- <laughs> what was interesting there is part of the deal that the bbc did with the broadcaster with the broadcasting commission was to, was to say that if they they must play a message for anybody calling this number that says that this is just a drama it's not real however keith what happened was they were so inundated with phone calls that the phone lines jammed so nobody yeah. who phoned actually got to hear that message that this is fake which only compounded the problem so keith what happened in ghostwatch that what's the first thing that you remember so um, the first thing that I remember really was getting to introduce to the family because um, obviously they chose Sarah Green, which was a very natural choice because mm-hmm. obviously the family were made up of three girls. There was no father involved. So it, it was a, it was a good choice to have Sarah Green as sort of like, um, like all girls together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's how it felt. That's how it feels watching it now. It feels really empathetic like, character as well. Yes. Yeah, I think if Craig Childs was the one in there, it would have been too jokey and uh, just mm-hmm. a, a little bit unbelievable. But Sarah Green really brought like an air of um, naturalism, but also sort of a comfort to the kids. Like the kids really liked her. She was a non-threatening force. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I think if it was if it was a man in there and it was like the whole thing of pipes that we'll come to. Do you know what I mean? I think a man would have probably gone at it with a more aggressive sort of stance whereas mm-hmm. um whereas sarah green was very like you said empathetic very sort of level-headed i would say she's really level-headed through the whole thing which really like freaks me out because now i'll be like i'll be like fuck this i'm getting out of here bye <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know and she, she was she was also very warm and loving like personality right yeah so so mm-hmm. she, she, she was definitely the right choice for this. Um, and then, yeah, mm-hmm. go, sorry, go ahead. What else do you remember from the opening of Ghostwatch? So I remember as well. I mean, I, I watched this uh, a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this show again. And um, the thing I really love about it is when Sarah Green's going around uh, looking at all the technology that they've got that they're going to be using to film <laughs> inside the house. I mean, now it's like, oh, my God. Do you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> the technology is, like, ancient. But obviously, back then, it was, like, top of the knot sort of stuff. So um, that's what I really remember. And what I really remember is, um, like, the, the thing that really hooked me. And I, I, I'm just going to say this, guys, okay? Watching it now, it is pretty unbelievable i mean the acting of the of the mother terrible. is like really starring yeah terrible oh. actress but what i will say is i still found it really really disturbing for reasons that we'll come to but the thing i found that really hooked me i was watching it going oh this is this is not as good as i remember it being the thing that really got me mm-hmm. was the scene when you had the shot of the girl's bedroom mm-hmm. and the girl screaming but then they go back to the studio and they take a phone call from a member of the public mm-hmm. who says that they see something else in that footage. Now, I was um, sitting there watching it going, yeah, 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 yeah. And then when that phone call came in, I found myself edging closer to the screen. And we like, all really did. Looking, remember, yeah. We but remember, I've seen that. this before. 
mm. I've seen this before. I'm an adult now, but I still really got into like the idea that this was happening live, and within five ten minutes, I was proper in it. Do you know what I mean? I was like, oh, yeah. oh my god. At one point, I had to get my fleece and put it around me. It was the point when you heard the get the ghost speaking. That still to this day got me. See, like <laughs> that. So Scared the ghost. Me. The ghost speaking is one of the most traumatic memories. So one where they had this bit of equipment that could basically record frequencies that the human ear couldn't uh, hear. And uh, yeah, they managed to record the the, the voice of this ghost. And I don't know if you would attempt to, to show the audience what it sounded like, Keith. Do you want to give it a go? Oh my god! Like, I'll creep myself out. I'll 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 end up in the fetal position if I find it. <laughs> it's it's really not like Get out of my house, sort of thing like get that. Out, get out of my house. Yeah, that's actually that. Was yeah, yeah. Bang on. Uh, and it was that the that you got to put yourself in the shoes of the of the audience. We were all thinking we're listening to the voice of a ghost. The other scene. That uh, you talked about, Keith, about when uh, the opening scene was of the of the two girls in their bedroom, and then the studio gets a phone call from a member of the public that says they saw something in the corner, and when they showed that same scene again, I think as a nation we all crept forward to our TVs to try and see that figure in the corner of that bedroom, right by the curtains. Mm-hmm. You know, and what that... I will and what I will say is it was there. But in the original scene, and this is a very clever trick, but in yep. the original original scene, it wasn't. Agreed. So, in the yeah. original scene, it wasn't. It was only after we got the phone call from the audience member to say that they thought they'd seen something. And then we went back to that footage and there was a ghost there. But originally there wasn't, which I thought was really good because it messed with our heads. Yeah, it you know really I mean? did. It messed with our heads. And I think that... You've got to also keep in mind, this is before the days where we could rewind live TV. So, like, there was no way of us checking. Now, the other sound that really sticks in my mind to this day was a sound of at least what the family thought were cats. Do you remember the sounds of the cats that would occur in the background? People were talking, so yeah. they'd hear cats. And then yeah. the studio well, we, received yeah. a phone call from somebody who knew the owner of, the, of this house. And said mm-hmm. that these aren't cats; these are in fact babies. And I, that just took on a completely yeah. different, different yeah. angle. Then, um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because I do. I, I'm, I'm, we're getting a lot of messages, and we'll, we'll start listening to your messages in a moment, guys. We're getting a lot of messages from people saying they haven't seen it, but they're going to go and watch it after after a, we finish this podcast. Okay. So, um, that, good to know. Good, good but, to know. Yeah, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers away about the actual plot. But what I will say to you, you will start watching Ghost Watch and think, okay, this is a little bit dated. This is a little bit ridiculous. But without giving anything away, by the end, when you find out what is actually happening, it is horrific. Horrific. I agree. Right. So... Horrific. How did so... the BBC approve this? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, well, do you know? Do you know? Like, I, I wonder that to this day, and I'm sure there's many big wigs at the BBC who also wonder the same. So, let us know your memories of Ghost Watch, please. We do have some messages coming through. Do, should we go through a couple now? 
Absolutely. Hope London is up first. Let's go. Hello. Good evening, Keith. Good evening, Ray J. Really, really excited to listen in tonight and actually a little bit scared. Um, <laughs> I remember this night very clearly. Um, it's one of the most prominent memories, actually, um, when I was young. I was about 12. Yeah, when this, when I watched this, I remember it. And my sister was about 11. And earlier on t this evening, I actually asked her about it. And her face just dropped. And she said she was really, really quite traumatised after watching this. Now, I must have blocked the memory because she said I used to tease her about it even for years after. She was about 15 when she kind of got over it. Um, but yeah, I had friends over that night. It's such a clear memory. And they were panicking and stressing. I was okay-ish because I kept telling myself it's not real until that last image when the camera swung round and then the possession the possessions of the oh yeah that's yeah it. so we've got to be careful with spoilers here but uh, there is one it's okay it's scene. okay there's that one particular scene where um as far as we were concerned for the very first time in television history a ghost was captured on live tv and i think that's the moment if if anyone hadn't screamed up until that point they certainly screamed when that happened mm -hmm. uh, do you remember that Keith? and not only that it would be the first time in history that they that uh, a bbc tv presenter was dead <laughs> it would be the first you know? time in history that a bbc tv <laughs> presenter was was dead that that is also very very true but uh, <laughs> do do you remember what so let's 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 pause for a second the the ghost was called do you remember what the ghost was called the ghost was called pipes it was called pipes right and why was mm -hmm. it called pipes it was called pipes because the uh, the young girls uh, who lived in the house um basically it rattled the pipe you know it made noises through the pipes and that's why they ended up calling him him that because it was like the cupboard under the stairs was mm. supposedly where pipes lived. And um, very early on, this isn't a spoiler, but very, very early on, the mum the tells a story of going into that cupboard under the stairs and feeling like there was something in there, like breathing on her neck, you know. Mm. So um, and that's where a lot of the pipes were located. So, yeah, that's where he gets his um, his nickname. From, from the two girls pipes so, yeah so the huge noise that would, that would frequent the entire program and we'd hear this would be of basically like almost like well quite literally pipes right so like banging mm -hmm. on pipes so the mother yeah. would tell would tell the girls don't worry don't worry kids don't worry. it's just the pipes it's just the pipes and it's gradually pipes. yeah that became its pipes um which is which is a really kind of a, you can sort of see how that would happen in 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 a re if this was real in a real world setting, um, and then then there, then there was also the image that Hope was talking about, which I think is burnt into everyone's minds. Do you remember? Oh, sorry. Do you remember what pipes looked like? You know, like in my mind, pipes look so different to what he actually looked like in the program. I had built up pipes so much to be this hideously disfigured, like, sort of blob with its eye missing and scars and everything. That's how I remember him being in my head. When I say that, it wasn't... 
I, I just need to add this in. It wasn't until I was about 12, 13 mm-hmm. that I was brave enough to go back and rewatch Ghost Watch. And um, we still had the VHS uh, tape. So that's how I watched the whole thing. Because I felt like I needed to face my fear. And plus, I'd just been to see, um, or I'd just seen, maybe my brother had it on, on video. I'd just seen the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So you and that, that in my head, yeah, sort of triggered a memory of this show. And I was like, oh, to my brother, oh, what was that show called? Oh, it was Ghostwatch. Have we still got it? And then I watched it because, you know, I was getting into like my horror phase at that point and I'd watch Blair Witch Project. Um, so, yeah, and it I, it really scared me then at like 12, 13, really scared me. Like, I was literally frozen with fear um, in my bed after watching it. I remember that. But um, the actual like physical manifestation manifestation of pipes mm. um when i watched it again a couple of weeks ago in my head was this huge like scary disfigured nasty like ghost thing wasn't as bad as i remember it being but still mm. really scary and really the thing that ghost watch does so well is that they use him so sparingly I think you only see him three mm-hmm. times. And this is this is where things get really interesting, you see. So the that glimpse that everyone sees that Hope, Hope was referring to actually resulted in very, very many different manifestations of pipes. Because the two mm-hmm. th- the two things that people had were that one glimpse and also a description that was read out I think a number of times in the studio about what pipes looked like. He was described as um, uh, a man wearing a buttoned-up jacket, right, a black jacket, all the way to the top. He was bored, and he had dark eyes or even no eyes, and he was disfigured. So that almost mm-hmm. set a bit of a, an image in people's minds even before they glimpsed um, Pipes. And then when they finally glimpsed him, they kind of blended the two together. And that's why there's a huge amount of amazing, amazing fan art about what people think pipes looks like and uh, those of you who follow me on instagram um will will have seen me post uh an ad to this show where there's one particular image which um which i use as an advert for this particular show which is exactly how i imagine pipes now for about good a good six months after ghostwatch i would imagine that character and this is for those of you who've not seen the advert think uncle fester from the Adams family, just more disfigured, <laughs> skinnier, yeah. and no eyes, like no eyes, right? That's the image that I had in my head with a buttoned up sort of jacket all the way to the top. I would imagine that character in the corner of my bedroom. Uh, and it, was, it, would, it, would te- it would terrify me every single night. So, um, but there's mm-hmm. so much more artwork out there. But that one particular scene... I think made everyone, everyone jump. Yeah, and I just want to say here, this this drama was broadcast six years before the Blair Witch Project. Now, Blair Witch Project blew like the, uh, you know, the camp, like the handheld found footage sort of genre wide open. Um, but at the time, nothing, nothing had been done about like this before. Now, except once before, and I think this is mm-hmm. really interesting that we talk about this, but it wasn't on the television 
it was mm-hmm. done on the radio and it was Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Right. Um, Orson Welles adapted War of the Worlds for the radio, but decided to do it as a news broadcast. So he wrote it as a drama that performed it as a news broadcast and it created like mass hysteria mass hysteria it was um people were like leaving their houses grabbing their kids running off you know like running off into the night people were terrified by this it was like it was unheard of you Mm. know it was like the public reaction was crazy it um yeah go on yeah no that's absolutely absolutely true and i think the, one of the reasons why the public was so engrossed in this wasn't just what they were seeing, but it's how cleverly the entire program took the viewers on a journey. So whilst mm-hmm. the experts and the paranormal investigators were discovering things about the house, so were we. So, for example, the audience were hugely invested, or at least, uh, you know, the, the Jay family was, my family was hugely invested in the fact that we were watching a, a real haunting happening on TV. And then there came a point where they showed the little girl banging on, on the pipes, which suddenly was, was a huge anticlimax for the entire nation. And we all thought, oh, shit, what a waste. The BBC went into a haunted house. That's just been proved that they were faking it all along. So they took us on this like roller coaster of like believing and then not believing and then believing again until the climax where... They went under the stairs. Keith, what do you remember about the climax? Well, it's really clever, isn't it? Because Mm. not giving too much away, basically they had a hope within a hope. That's Mm -hmm. what it was. So you were invested in all of this sort of, um, you know, the bended bended forks and, you know, people saying that they'd seen the ghost in the background of of photos and shots. And then you had the the anticlimax of um, the kid basically... um, like doing the whole thing she was the one banging on the pipe she was doing the, the voice of the ghost and you were thought you thought oh well that's you know that's explained everything but then obviously the final act kicked in and mm. which is the most horrific part of the whole thing I'm not going to give any spoilers away there but mm-hmm. it's clever it's brilliant writing Stephen Volk is a very very clever writer and um I just want to say very very quickly about like the how he came up with um with Ghostwatch as a, a sort of, you know, concept. I mean, Ghostwatch was arisen, originally going to be a six-part drama mm-hmm. in which a, a fictional paranormal investigator and a TV reporter investigate poltergeist activity in a North London housing estate, gradually discover, discovering more elements to the mystery each week. And it would have uh, culminated in uh, the final episode, which would have been a live TV broadcast from the property. So it would have been a drama right up to the last episode, where which would have been the live. But then again, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have had the power because you would have followed five weeks previously. You would have followed the characters and you would have known that it was a drama before it was the live investigation. Still very clever. Still a mm-hmm. really like way of, of twisting the genres but um it would not it would not have caused obviously any um of the issues that it did but then yeah, no, uh, the produ- yeah the producer um 
doubted the viability of like the entire miniseries and recommended instead a 90 minute TV special, which um, Volk suggested they do the whole thing like episode six, portraying the actual live broadcast uh, fronted by well-known TV presenters, which they did. Which I think was a, was a very clever move for two reasons. One was I think if they had had um, a number of episodes leading up to the big show on the, the big live show, it would have caused a lot of discussion amongst the public. And there'd be half the public who wouldn't be convinced of this before they started watching the live show. And the second reason why I think this, that would have been a bad idea is one of the things that made Ghostwatch so incredibly special was the surprise factor of it. You've got to remember yeah. that not everyone knew about Ghostwatch. People were just tuning in uh, into a BBC programme to relax after a long day, right? That's what they were doing. And that's when they were hit with this, um, this incredibly shocking, shocking drama. So yeah. shall we take another message there, Keith? Yeah, let's hit one. I'll hit it now. You know, it's quite interesting uh, hearing your guys' reaction from this thing, because I watched this uh, movie or show or whatever you want to call it, TV special, uh, a few years back and was unaware that it was like this thing that had actually fucked up quite a people, uh, quite a few people in the UK. So uh, I learned all this after the fact, and it is quite interesting. Um, I think this might carry on, this message. Go on. The, other one? the program oh, no, you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. It contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows. Yet for the past 10 months, this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity. Thank you, Untraced. Okay, so the, so the monologue was actually the beginning of the programme. Now, Untraced, if you can, can you find the, the, the monologue or the intro to Ghostwatch that was done by uh, the BBC man just before Ghostwatch was actually started to get broadcast? So just that little intro, because that's, that was, uh, I think that's when I was talking about, Keith, where it's a really clever, cleverly worded way of introducing the program that kind of says it's a drama but kind of says that it's not so i'm trace if you can find that that'd be really appreciated yeah absolutely i mean that just sent shivers down my spine did it you yeah absolutely and just just you know talk about what uh was it was it tony who, who left the message just before um about fucking up an entire nation it did fuck up an entire nation i mean like for many years and even to this day keith i would say that um, no horror movie has scared me. Right? I've lost that. I, I feel like I've lost that sensation of, you know, fear from a horror movie. Right? I don't have that anymore, and I attribute that purely to Ghostwatch because I feel like I've broken my fear bone in my brain, so to speak. Like nothing, nothing is ever going to terrify me as much as this program did. Uh, and I think I completely I'm agree with you. Yeah, I think when you experience something so scary and so disturbing at a young age. Like, nothing can compare to it. I mean, even the Blair Witch Project for me was tame compared to watching Ghostwatch at five years old. Like, it was the scariest thing. Um, and adults as yeah, well. So, we, we, we were kids, but I can, I can safely say that, um, I mean, this was talked about in the playgrounds. It was talked about in the workplace. There were adult, grown-up people who were traumatised by this as well. And I remember... Ray J, it was, 
It was talked about in Parliament. It was talked about... Yes. Tell us more, Keith. So basically, um, so many um, complaints were made about the show. Over 30,000 complaints in the hour that the show took place. So that's, that's unheard of. It's still the most complained about uh, TV show in the history of the UK. More than any of that Big Brother stuff, anything like that. 30,000 complaints in an hour. It got it. It basically it was also one of the reasons why the phone lines were all blocked at the BBC because people were calling up and complaining and they were worried about the um, about the TV presenters who they obviously knew and loved. They were scared for Sarah Green. They were concerned mm. for Michael Parkinson. Um, so, yeah, when it um, was aired and, you know, the full sort of um, picture was seen of how traumatized and how sort of scared people really were mm. it, the BBC needed to be have a stern talking to they needed oh, to yeah. be sort of have you know they needed to have the riot act read to them basically um, so they did and they got you know it was in parliament and they got uh, you know really really told off by it yeah the, uh, the broadcasting um the Broadcasting Standards Commission um, was a huge part in this as well. They were they were really really angry. I mean, it's, um, at it's the BBC, surprising, it's surprising they managed to get away with this in the first place. So, geese. I mean, it's it's at, at some point you would have thought, and you got to keep in mind that this is like this is this is before the day that there was like you know BBC Three and like BBC News and all these other B. We just had BBC One and BBC Two, right? That's all we had. And it was before right? the internet. You have to remember that as well. It was yeah. before the internet. So the only way that people could have found out that this was a drama was A, in the Radio Times, which was really popular uh, back then. And mm -hmm. it was billed as a drama. It had drama and the cast list. It, like I said before, it even had who the ghost was played by in it, for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> and then um, Green One was a very renowned segment on the bbc about mm -hmm. a, uh, a weekly drama and it was a screen one if you look at the the opening um like just before the show starts instead of the usual bbc one logo it says screen one screen one so that's, that's very true yeah a, a tuned in audience member would have known that this was a drama but people turn tuning in Five minutes into it, ten minutes into it, mm -hmm. wouldn't know that unless they've and, read it in the Radio Times. And I'd also say that I think most viewers, just like today, back then was the same. Then they, they weren't necessarily tuned in to, you know, who the production company was or what the slots were. They were just regular viewers who didn't really pay much attention to this stuff. But you know what disappoints me, Keith? Like they can never ever do a Ghost Watch type program ever again. Ghost Watch had took that one chance. They did it incredibly well. And I don't see this ever happening again. What do you reckon? No. And um, I will tell you this brilliantly. If you go, um, I think it was the year before last, um, Inside Number Nine, the, the comedy drama series, oh, yes. uh, did their very own take on Ghostwatch, which I thought was really good. Obviously, everyone knew that it was a, a take on Ghostwatch, so therefore no one took it as seriously as they did with Ghostwatch, but it was really good, and it was like their version of it. 
and it was really, really clever and really sort of picked apart why people thought that Ghostwatch was real. And it is like it's a it's a turning point in history because it and it came at the right time. That's the thing. If it was done like a couple of years later when the Internet started to sort of become big, it wouldn't have had the impact. No, exactly. But this was before all that. So I just want to read quickly some of, of the controversy stuff behind it. So um, although Ghostwatch did air under the Screen One banner, its documentary style led many viewers to believe the events were real, causing much controversy after the show's airing. The BBC was besieged by 30,000 phone calls from irate and frightened viewers, and the British tabloids and other newspapers criticised the BBC the next day for the, for the disturbing nature of some of the scenes, which, as Green's final scene, um, I'm not going to read that bit because, you know, we don't want to know. We don't um, know. We, we thought she might, she might be dead. I'll just say that. But um, Sarah Green advertised the programme on her Saturday morning kids show going live. Um, including that, that's insane, a, isn't it? That's insane. Including that. a visit, yeah, including a visit to the location of the haunting, and gave the impression that she was taking part in a reality show. Just insane. I mean, like, let's not forget this was a, I, I believe it was a Friday night, and she was due to go on air live for going live the very next morning. So every child watching and going live was the thing to watch back in the day. Every child watched going live on a Saturday morning. Yeah, um, and those of you. But Green or... did. Green did say, um, on the following Mondays after the broadcast of Ghostwatch, on the following Monday, she did um, reassure younger viewers that the of show course. was not real. She had. She had. <laughs> but to of course, reassure. it's not. She's alive. Well, she had. To, <laughs> like, but then we all did think. A lot of us thought um, that she was actually dead, right? Or she was at least trapped somewhere. Right, we won't go into details. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's no surprise that they had to open the next going live show with Sarah Green reassuring people that she is okay. And I'm bloody glad she did because I because I thought, well, again, I won't say what I thought. I might give away too much, but there we go. Yeah. Um, let's hit a message, and then I want to go into um, the psychological effects of Ghostwatch on the nation, because people might think that we're being dramatic uh, talking about this, but we're not, guys. We have receipts, and I'm going to deliver those receipts to you uh, right after this message. Also, to anybody listening, interested in checking this thing out, it is available on the streaming service Shudder. I highly suggest it. It's a very fun, uh, cozy little show, um, oh. <laughs> but yeah, holy shit! I didn't, was not aware that Crime Watch was a thing, so that kind of adds a whole other layer uh, to it. Damn, they got, these guys really got the UK good, didn't they? They really did get the UK good, and I think um, like cozy, cozy fun drama. I, <laughs> cozy. I think I think I, I I see where Tony's going with this. When you watch it now, I think it's really hard to sort of. Uh, and, and do watch it. It's worth watching, if for no other reason than it, it's television history. But when you do watch it, it's maybe really hard to imagine why there was such a reaction to this program. But that's because you have the benefit of um, being in the modern day, so to speak. So when you do watch it, watch it like 
put yourself in the position of an average family who have three TV channels. That's it. No internet. And, um, you know, I, I very rarely get live TV programs. When a live TV program comes on, like, you know, like families would say to each other, oh, my God, look, it's live TV. You know, that was the days that we were talking about. So do watch it. And when you do, make sure you put yourself into, into that uh, mindset. Um, yeah, the only, he, things, the only things that were live in those days were um, the news, morning TV, like Good Morning Britain that we've got now, but it was got GMTV or something in those days. Um, mm-hmm. Then you've got the kids' live TV shows on a Saturday morning and Crime Watch. They were the right. only things that were live. I mean, it was a huge innovation, right, for live TV to, to occur mm. like that. Um, but psychological, psychological uh, impacts, mm. Keith. Um, I, so I mentioned yeah. my, the psychological impacts that I had. I know that there were a number of kids out there who uh, had to get taken to the doctors and were subsequently, subsequently diagnosed with PTSD. What else yeah. happened? Right. So there were a number, number of psychological effects um, were reported in the wake of Ghostwatch. And Tony, I hope you're listening, because I, 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 I hope that you don't call it a cosy fun drama after you've heard this, my friend. So um, in all seriousness, all seriousness though, uh, an 18-year-old uh, factory worker named Martin Denham, um, mm. who suffered from learning disabilities and had the, uh, the mental age of a 13-year-old, died uh, by suicide five de- days after the programme aired. Uh, the family home had suffered with a faulty central heating system, which had caused the pipes to knock. And Denham linked this to the activity in the show, uh, causing great worry. Uh, he left a suicide note reading, um, if there are ghosts, I will be with you always as a ghost. And his, um, his mother and stepfather, April and Percy Denham, blamed the BBC and they claimed that Martin was hypnotised and obsessed by the programme and the British Broadcasting Standards Commission refused their complaints along with 34 others as being outside their remit. But the High Court granted the Denham's permission for, um, for a review uh, requiring the, B, um, the British uh, Standards Commission uh, to hear their complaint. So yep. um, in this ruling, really yeah, in this ruling, the B, um, the British Standards Commission stated that the BBC had a duty to do more than simply hint at the deception it was practicing on the audience in uh, in the audience in Ghostwatch. There was a deliberate attempt um, to cultivate a sense of menace. They ruled that the programme was excessively distressing and graphic, referring to the scratches on the children and the reference to mutilated animals, and that it had aired too soon after the 9pm watershed. They further stated that the presence in the programme of presenters familiar from children's programmes took some parents off guard in deciding whether their children could continue to view. Wow. That's the report. Do you know, um, yeah, you know, all of that is so hashtag relatable. And I think like, so the, the, the young fellow who, who killed himself from this uh, because he mm-hmm. was so fixated by this is, I don't think uh, due to his sort of his, him being mentally challenged, I think most people were. And I think at least my house, 
definitely had and a lot lot of houses back then when i think about um the old central heating systems god i feel really fucking old but anywho like the old central <laughs> heating system, they really yeah. did they really did kind of uh rattle a hell of a lot um and keith whilst you mm. was you were reading that out i've actually found the voice of pipes is that okay. something that you would want to hear and by show of claps should i play the voice of pipes do we play the ghost um voice from ghost watch do we, we play a the... single clap <laughs> we'll play it yeah so um the... can okay. i just can sure. i just say can i just go just one more with this last bit so the film's producers argued that ghost watch had aired during a drama slot uh, that it was recognisable as fiction to the vast majority and that running disclaimers and other announcements during the programme would have ruined its effectiveness. Um, they also stated that um, that had they anticipated the audience's reaction, they would have made its fictional nature clearer. However, the, um, the British Standards Commission ruling was that all they had to do was issue an apology. So I don't buy that personally. Like, so whilst I accept that it would ruin its effectiveness, I, re- I don't agree with the fact that most of the people thought it was fiction. Most of the people definitely mm-hmm. thought this was real and that's what they were going for. Mm. Um, so like they are the BBC. Mm. They, they would have known how to make this impactful in telling people that, that this was uh, drama, but I think they were, they were very. But I will say it. though, I do think that if they had con- continued to state during the program that this is fiction, like having a like a like a sort of thing come up every now and again at the bottom of the screen, this is not real. This is fiction. That would have ruined it. That really would mm. have ruined it. But you have to remember that the I, I know that the phone got jammed. I know the phones got jammed, and that's like the BBC's fault. But their intention was to have a recorded message for anyone that called that number to tell them that the programme was a drama and was fictional. But the only problem was that got buggered up by the amount of people calling in. And I don't think the BBC anticipated that. And I think that was that was where they failed. They didn't anticipate um, the the reaction from the audience. This definitely was bigger than that. And, you know, this was definitely bigger than the BBC could have ever, ever imagined. Um, so, yeah, yeah we will give them the benefit of doubt on, on that on that part. But um, OK, here we go. We've got a lot of claps just to let you know for the ghost voice. OK, so I'm going to so shit my pants. So, look, so let, let me let me explain the context behind the voice that you're about about to hear. So this was a device that was set up and it was one of those old school kind of, um, you know, those two reels where, where the tape kind of goes from one reel to the other. I forgot what you call them, but you know, the old school kind of uh, recording devices. And what, mm-hmm. what just happened here was a chair had flung across the room and there was multiple lamps and things that had just um, for, been thrown off uh, their, the tables where, wherever they were. And then one of the little girls becomes possessed or she looks like she's possessed and then it it occurs to the mother who is known as mrs pascoe that she's possessed and then mrs pascoe attempts to make or attempts to communicate with 
the ghost that is possessing her child. Are you ready to hear oh. what this ghost has to say, Keith? God, just rip the plaster off. Go on. Okay, here we go. And what I'll do, I'll play it, and then I'll, if, if, if you need to know what they said, I'll tell you what they said as well. Here we go. Grant? If you can grant, can you speak? What a Does that ring bells for you, Keith? Yeah. Picture, mm. picture five-year-old Keith literally losing his shit. And the image to imagine here was a little girl who is mouthing these words, and the, that is a voice that's coming out. Of her. And could you hear what was being said, Keith? Um, very vaguely. I know, so, but I, I can't really. So, Do you want to inform us? So Pipes was singing round and round the garden like a teddy bear, one step, mm. two step, tickle under there. And then yeah. he claimed he was Jesus Christ and then claimed that all good children go to heaven. So this was, we subsequently found, find out that, uh, and I t- correct me if I'm wrong, but did he have an obsession with, this, he was a psychiatric patient, wasn't he, before he died? This Pipes character. I don't, I don't want to give too much away. But, okay, um... but we, we do learn that he had... That his, that, that the, the, the Pipes in, in the flesh before he died had a very interesting past. But that yes. voice... We do find I out think, about it. I think that voice is one that uh, is definitely burnt into my memory. So, mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, I shit myself. Just saying, <laughs> I remember it. I remember it so Absolute clearly. I literally head. stood up, screamed, fell on the floor. <laughs> my my head was in my hands. I was sobbing. I was crying. My brother did not know what to do. Like he was like, "Oh my god!" Like we said earlier, I've broken my brother. Like he thought he'd broken me. <laughs> and when my parents came home, I just remember my dad like carrying me upstairs and my like head being on my dad's shoulder, and I was just sobbing and crying. Now. I have to put this into some perspective. Like, my nephew, Robin, is five years old now. There is no way on God's earth I would show him this. Like, what Absolutely. was my brother thinking? Your brother's <laughs> evil one, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I would never tell that to a kid. Shall absolutely. we get a message? Oh, let's hit a message, and then I want to just go back into a little bit of the psychological effect um, from the show, because there's a, a little bit that I want to talk about... Um, that was in the British uh, Medical Journal. Wow, it reached the BMJ. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I, uh, um, I'll hit it. Here we go. Only thing I gotta say is I've never heard of this before, and is there anywhere that I can watch it? Because I would love to watch it. Oh, yeah. I think, um, didn't we say um, Shudder 
I think someone suggested, and I think it is on YouTube. I think you can watch it on YouTube. I think you watch it on YouTube. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I've just typed in um, Ghost Watch into YouTube, and it, it is there. So um, there you go, guys. You can watch Ghost Watch, Ghost Watch BBC into YouTube, and you can watch it there. But what I will say is, um, just remember of like, when this was this when mm-hmm. we this was broadcast. Try and transport your back to that point and also like i would say don't watch it like at night it is right now let's see the tips like... oh hello, hello, sorry, Michael. hello. <laughs> i was gonna say um yeah it is still very affecting just to let you know it is you might not think you okay. might not think at the beginning but when you get to the end and you turn it off and you go oh well, that was the ghost watch it will be under your skin for a couple of days and to Hope specifically, I'm sending her a picture of the image that uh, is burnt into her mind. Anybody else who wants to see it, drop me a follow on Instagram and drop Keith a follow too. Keith, that that'd be nice. I'd like that. Tell us right. Tell us more about the psychological challenges that occurred. To um, Simons and Stiliera published a report in the British Medical Journal in February 1994 describing two cases of ghost watch induced post-traumatic stress disorder in children both 10 year old boys how mm-hmm. old were you ray j i was about eight there they're about yeah so see this is around your um around mm-hmm. your age group uh they stated that there um there were they were the first reported cases of post-traumatic stress caused by a television program responses to the article described a further four cases of children aged between 11 and 14 as well as one case in an eight-year-old that mm-hmm. stemmed from watching a pre pre-watershed um hot um episode of casualties the casualty was another program that they said had caused um issues within children uh, the respondents also noted the potential for similar reactions in elderly people. However, the mm-hmm. conclusion of the article states the rapid resolution of the children's symptoms suggests that the children su- suffered a brief anxiety re- reaction to the te- to the television program, although they may have exhibited some of the features of post-traumatic stress disorder. The diagnosis of their cases um, is un- inappropriate. So they're saying that um, it showed signs of post-traumatic stress, um, but they couldn't have been 100% sure whether it did actually cause that, whether it was the TV show that caused it or anything that happened subsequent to it. But uh, interesting I think that, fair. Yeah, but interesting that the, 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 the British Medical Journal even carried out a study about it because of the, rea- because of the um, like, reactions that it had. Well, this is it. I mean, look, this was also at a time when there was just this new, this whole kind of belief system that movies are ruining our kids. What we see on TV is ruining our children. There was this huge mass hysteria about this. So this this program fed into that beautifully. Now, I will say that most people that I know and my sample size is limited to just the social circle of eight-year-old Ray J. We all recovered from this, right? I mean, it was huge at the time, but we did recover from recover from this. Uh, so, would you agree, Keith, that there were no long term effects of this of this uh, program? 
What on me? Yeah. There were long-term effects. Of course there were. 100%. I mean, wow. long-term effects, not necessarily of the negative. I became obsessed with this genre because of Ghostwatch. The so, long-term that's... effects may not be a negative. For me, Ghostwatch was what really started my obsession and love for the horror genre. Like, I Very couldn't get enough of it. In fact, I feel like that my love for the genre and me watching pretty much everything from from horror to ghost stories to thrillers actually is an internal sort of striving for me to try and find something that beats the fear factor me of too. Ghost Watch. Right? And I exactly haven't it. found it yet. And I haven't so, found it yet. I agree fully. So I always say, right, that I'm always looking for something that's going to scare me more than Ghostwatch did, right? And I, I haven't found it. Um, so that's, that's really interesting to know that Ghostwatch made you the person that you are. Very interesting. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, it, it caused, it, it ignited something in me of um, that fear of being quite young. That was, it was quite traumatic, you know, sleeping with the light on for a week, sleeping in my parents' bed for two days. You know, mm. it was it was a very short term traumatic experience. But remember, when you experience something like that in your development years, it really does stay with you. And therefore, it can either be that you become a very nervous person who doesn't like horror, doesn't like being scared, doesn't be like being made to, to, you know, to jump, you know, when someone jumps out at you. Right. Um, but for me, it had the effect of that I liked that feeling mm-hmm. in some way of being scared and safe. It's you know, I was. It's a thrilling feeling. Yeah. So I think that that has actually, um, and, and I know it, like people might think, yeah, right, whatever. But I do think that, um, I do think that Ghostwatch was what lit that flame in me of, uh, of enjoying ghost stories, the paranormal, horror movies, and anything like that. It really was fully, the start of my journey into that genre. I, w- I would fully agree uh, that, that I'm hugely interested in the horror genre, but not from an academic point of view or a fan point of view. I'm really interested in the fear of that horror movies elicit within me. But I'm, th- th- Ghostwatch is the reason why I'm gen- genuinely disappointed or generally disappointed. Um, has, has there ever been a horror movie, Keith, that's come close to Ghostwatch? I think um, the closest film that's ever come ever come close to scare me like that. I mean, there's been like experiences in films where I've been like had a an intense emotion of fear. Mm-hmm. I would say the Blair Witch Project. I mean, I would dare anyone to watch the Blair Witch Project with headphones on or earphones. Because the thing that is really scary about the Blair Witch Project, which is also what is really scary about Ghostwatch, is mm-hmm. it's not necessarily what you're seeing, it's what you're hearing. Agreed. The sound Absolutely. is brilliant. Yeah. This so is, I think that... Blair Witch... Yeah, I think that... Um, I used to share a room with my younger brother, mm. and whenever I used to watch TV or a film, I used to have to wear headphones so that I didn't disturb him. And I watched the Blair Witch Project. hadn't hadn't seen it for a couple of years, but I had seen it a couple of times. 
But watching it with headphones was a different experience altogether to the point where I was literally frozen to the spot. And the other film, actually, the other film that brought me to that point of, of, of fear, not as much as Ghostwatch. I don't think anything can beat Ghostwatch. I really honestly don't. But the mm-hmm. other thing that brought me to that sort of state of fear was the original uh, Japanese ring. Very interesting. See, like mm. that, like for me, then you'll see a trend in this. For the this, this, the movies that came closest were Paranormal Activity, and also the I think it's the first Conjuring, all of which are haunted house movies. And I think the one thing that Ghostwatch left in me, which is which is what I'm constantly looking for in a horror movie, is less so about what you're seeing more so about the atmosphere that is kept throughout the entire film. And those are the movies, like The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity, that most closely resemble that fear that I'm, I'm constantly trying to find, that like Ghostwatch once elicited within me. So haunted house movies for me absolutely do it. Now, Keith, yeah. I've, al- I've also mm-hmm. sent you a picture on WhatsApp. So when you get a chance, have a look at that. I have seen see- it. Terrifying. Okay terrifying so um yeah as you as you mentioned there are various instances in the movie where you get to see pipes um and that is one of them and i think that's the one that if anyone's seen it you know exactly the one that i'm talking about anyone who's seen ghost watch will know exactly what screen what image i've just sent keith um and hopefully those of you mm-hmm. who haven't when you do see the movie you'll know exactly what i sent to keith just now absolutely absolutely and and Obviously, we haven't been giving the plot away. We want you guys to go and watch Ghost Watch um, after we finish this podcast. Go and watch it. It is definitely, definitely worth it. We've spoken about uh, the controversy. We've talked about the plot. We've spoken about the psychological effects. I think it's good if we talk now about the legacy of Ghost Watch. We've talked a bit about horror movies and the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Now, the makers of the Blair Witch Project were reported to have seen the film before going on to make uh, the Blair Witch Project when they were hunting around for sort of found footage horror that they could use for inspiration Ghostwatch mm-hmm. was one of the films that they watched which I thought was very interesting yeah and, um, and... yeah go on no I was going to say um, so I, I can see how this particular oh, the Ghostwatch watching Ghostwatch can result in the thinking of um, the, the, the the hidden was it the found footage genre? But again, it's, it's one of these things that uh, Ghostwatch has kind of created that genre of its own that no one can ever now, uh, no movie can join the genre because it's kind of that one time it's been done and that's it. So um, it's interesting to see how this, because the legacy we will talk about is what's been done so far. But I also think in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see a lot more that gets, you know, that has its origins within Ghostwatch. Yeah, I do. And like I said, Ghostwatch can never be replicated because no. obviously um, it's impossible. You know, you can't scare a nation twice. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There's no, there's going to be no shame on us. Hundo P. It's oh, yeah. just not, you know, possible. But um, yeah, I think that Ghostwatch has had a huge uh, legacy, I think that uh, 
the thing I love about it, and it's about other TV shows, for another like TV show, for example, like um, things that people have grown up with, like Doctor Who, for example. Doctor Who ignites the creativity in mm-hmm. younger people watching the show, and then they go on and become like the showrunners, like uh, Stephen Moffat, who was showrunner for Doctor Who, was a huge Doctor Who fan when he was a kid. So it's almost like that continues. Whereas I think a lot of people that really fell in love with Ghostwatch and were really inspired by it have gone on to be creative in that uh, genre themselves. I know a lot of people um, that have gone on to write sort of uh, ghost fiction uh, mm-hmm. quotes, um, Ghostwatch as being, um, you know, up there. Matt, Matt Winoninsky, I don't know if I've got his name perfectly right, um, writes a series of books um he writes them as podcasts so when you're reading the book it sounds like it looks like you're reading the script to a podcast but they're ultimately about uh murders and the paranormal and mm. and i've read all of his books i think they're amazing if anyone um, wants to read a really good sort of supernatural thriller go and read those books because they're really well done or amazing. go and buy the audio books off of audible because obviously it's done like a podcast so it sounds awesome um but has its roots in that sort of, you know, drama, docudrama sort of way. And it even spills into other genres as well. I mean, look at things like The Office. You know, Mm. if you were completely clueless about who any of those people were in The Office, if you went back 30 years and showed someone who did not know anything about the office um the british office i'm talking about and showed them Mm. the very first episode i guarantee you they would believe that this was a documentary so are you so would you say that Ghostwatch, in a sense kick-started the mockumentary genre yeah i do wow that's that's really interesting because it's true that there there was no such thing as a mockumentary before it's ghost watch so it's very possible Really interesting. But you have to remember, there was, there was, um, this is not the first time that the BBC have, have tricked people either. Um, mm. This is really mm. interesting. So in 1957, okay, on April Fool's Day, um, there was a news report on Panorama mm-hmm. <laughs> about um, the spaghetti tree hoax. So, <laughs> so basically, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. People, they they put spaghetti, like cooked spaghetti in trees. And they did this whole thing about people in Switzerland going around and picking the, um, <laughs> the spaghetti off the trees and put them in, putting it in a basket. <laughs> and that's where you get spaghetti from. And people believed it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people thought that people were harvesting spaghetti from trees. That's amazing. So, that's amazing. Yeah, and it was like a reputable, you know, news establishment. It was Panorama on the BBC, you know, that were doing this. So they have tricked us before, you know. They and, have. Um, so I, I can't say that Ghostwatch was the first time that something like this created the docudrama because that three-minute news report is classic. Mm. You know, like you watch that and you think that's interesting. So I would say the spaghetti tree hoax was probably the start of it. And then obviously War of the Worlds was up there as well. But I think that Ghostwatch really kick-started the, um, 
the 21st century, even though it was a, a 20th century program, I think that the people that then grew up, like who watched Ghostwatch as a kid and then grew up in the 21st century, then went on to start making dramas and writing uh, stuff in that genre. And I think that that's where it all started. So there's also, talk about sort of the impact it's had in the industry. Um, they did a study at, uh, I think it was Leeds University in the media department, where there's, there's been at least one student who's always wanted to do a project on Ghostwatch every year since 1992. And I'm sure the same can be said for other uni- media, media departments at universities across the UK. So it's definitely, I do think it's a matter of time before we do find something that, that's, uh, uh, that, that's a new take on Ghostwatch that will fool us again, but certainly not as we established in a genre like this. Um, it's also interesting, though, Keith, that the BBC have never tried to fool us since um, in any other way, or have they? No, I don't think you could. I think that the, I think people are very clued up in that way. I think that if mm. there was anything that were done, it wouldn't be in this genre. They would no, probably try and trick be. us in a way. No, they'd probably try and trick us in a different genre, in a different way, like as a joke, maybe on April Fool's Day. But to actually go full on horror like they did with Ghostwatch, there's just no way people could fall for it again. It no, was a one-off. And Stephen Volk, for me, who wrote Ghostwatch, is a frigging genius. He just is. So what else because did he do? he did it. Um, didn't work much for the BBC after Ghostwatch, surprisingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> so um, his other work, well, he's, he's written lots of novels and short stories. So he's become more of a writer of um, in novel form uh, over the last year. So he's got... Um, quite a long list of novels that he's written did ghost watch he did um a couple of series um afterlife was a series that he did uh which i remember actually it was like a mystery drama uh that was um i don't think that was done that was itv and it ran for two seasons it was called afterlife starred uh andrew lincoln of uh, walking dead fame and leslie uh-huh. sharp uh interesting so yeah that was in yeah, that was in 2005, 2006, but that looks like it's that's the um, the only time that he's ever come back to writing, um, sort of for television. Interesting. So I know so that he did. So I was going to say I know that he did a really um, good instalment of the audio series, the Hammer Horror, um, like horror horror stories for audio, which um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, which he did one of those. Which, great really good i'm i'm gonna to have to look up more of his work i've never really explored mm-hmm. any work but then i guess when you do something like ghost watch doesn't everything else kind of fade into comparison uh but i'm definitely going to look up more of his work for those of you who are interested and i don't know if you've seen this keith he's also done a great ted talk where he talks about ghost watch from his perspective and the impact it had on Ooh. him as a person so if you haven't seen that then um Definitely check that out. Um, so that's never seen that. I'm going to definitely yeah. gonna watch that. Um, just um, I, th- I think we've we've um, I think we've got pretty much all the information out there that we were saying. Oh, but I yes. just wanted to say that there is a really good um, documentary that I think you can watch on YouTube as well. It's called Ghost Watch Behind the Curtains. Um, there's a lot of really interesting interviews with the cast. Excuse the motorbike going past. Mm-hmm. Um, it also <laughs> talks about things like um, 
Darren Brown, the British illusionist, uh, once said that he um, that the that Ghostwatch had inspired uh, his controversial TV hoax seance, which is where he tried to do it again. You know, Dar- Darren Brown actually, you know, uh, yes, um, he came close. Didn't has he? tried to do it. Yeah, he's tried to do it a few times. Um, they tried to do a seance. Do you remember where they tried to call up uh, Michael Jackson? That's and right. Apparently, so um, Derek Ahura got in touch with Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson was going, um, "Yeah, I'm up here with my manager," and I can't remember what his manager's name was. <laughs> and Derek Ahura was like, "Yeah," and he's talking Quincy Jones. He's talking to Quincy Jones, and then one of the women next to him went, "Yeah, but Quincy Jones is still alive." <laughs> <laughs> so I think oh. that completely and utterly. Um, Completely and utterly, uh, you know, through that completely, that <laughs> Derek Ahura thought that he was talking to uh, a dead guy who was actually alive. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm about to blow your mind a little bit, Ray J, and on, uh, listeners out there. Did you know? And if you did know, try and act shocked, Ray J. Did you know <laughs> that there is a sequel to Ghostwatch? How could there be a sequel to Ghostwatch? Tell me more. Are you ready? Oh, Are you yeah. ready? The sequel is called 3110 and it's featured in Dark Corners. A screenwriter, Stephen Volk, wrote a short story entitled 3110, which is effectively a sequel to Ghostwatch. The piece uh, was later selected uh, for the year's best fantasy and horror 2007 and a Bram Stoker Award in 2006. The story itself centers on Volk taking part in a fictitious 10th anniversary edition of Ghostwatch in 2002, venturing into the previously sealed off BBC studio space where the original show took place. He is that accompanied by a small amazing. amazing. Yeah, he is he's accompanied by a small team of individuals whose lives were somehow affected by the broadcast 10 years previously. Uh, a free PDF file of 3310 can be found on Stephen Volk's official website. So let me get this straight. So, so he goes back to the studio, the same studio, and which has uh, been sealed off. Which has been sealed no, off. Just, okay. Yeah. So Stephen Volk take uh, himself on the tenth anniversary of Ghostwatch. Ventures into the previously sealed off BBC studio space where the original show took place. And he's accompanied by a small team of individuals whose lives were somehow affected by the broadcast 10 years previously. That's I all it says absolutely here. absolutely watching this tonight. And I think just for context sake, uh, yeah. for those of you wondering why the studio, you'll need to watch Ghost Watch to understand the relevance of why Stephen Folk went back to the studio for the sequel. But do you know what? I, I've... I had no idea it was a sequel, and that's exactly what I'll be watching tonight. Thank you for that. Yeah, so it's actually um, in in written form, so I think it's a novel or a short story. Yeah. So you can't watch it, but it is you can um, you can oh, see. Uh, yeah, yeah, go. yeah. Download the PDF. It's a short story, so you can download the PDF file, which is available free on his um, website. Steve, uh, website stephenvolk.net. Yeah. yeah. So if you go on there, apparently you can find it. And yeah, download that. And if you've watched Ghost Watch, um, yeah, have a go. Have a I'm, have a, uh, a read of that. 
I'm absolutely going to read that. That's great. Should we hit these messages? What do you reckon? Yeah, I have think you guys heard of that theory? Because um, I've noticed I haven't seen the show yet. I'm going to watch it off YouTube later. Um, but you you do notice that with a lot of these poltergeist stories, they do tend to start around the the, the the spirit or whatever it is does tend to manifest around the time that one of the girls is usually beginning to menstruate. Um, have you heard about the idea and the theory that actually um, that beginning? Um, can cause some kind of sort of like psychic energy that can help, that can sort of like manifest certain, uh, I don't know how to describe this, like phenomena that mm. are, are attributed to sort of like the supernatural uh, ghostly things. And uh, what do you think about that? I don't really know where you guys stand on sort of hauntings in general. So just wondering. Interesting. They do, they deal with this quite heavily in Ghostwatch. They do. And it's to Shrubs' point, it's very true that a lot of movies that centre around uh, someone being possessed or possessions or poltergeists often have girls um, who are of an age, I guess. Uh, and so th- there's definitely some link between the two. I don't know enough about why that is, but there's certainly a link. And I think that's very, very well noticed, Shrubs. I think we must say as well, and, I, and I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't talk about this at the beginning. It was my intention to. So I do apologize, guys. But you also have to remember that only about 20 years later, mm. you, the UK was gripped by a real poltergeist case in Enfield. So, right. you know, the Enfield poltergeist or the Enfield haunting is, um, you know, very renowned. Um, if you go back and look at uh, newspaper articles, uh, the Enfield poltergeist was pretty much on the front page of the newspapers for like a couple of weeks where two girls who were of age, um, you know, of, you know, ha- maybe coming on their first period, mm-hmm. um, you know, were sort of, you know, experiencing pretty much a lot of the experiences that the girls in Ghostwatch were. were. And I think that that's the, the, sort of inspiration that Stephen Volk took uh, to do Ghostwatch was from the Enfield poltergeist, having two girls, two sisters that were involved um, of, of that age. I think that that's where the seed germinated for him, because like I said, it was only like 20 years previously that the UK was gripped by this story and uh, so gripped I mean, by it that even yeah. Hollywood have recently uh, done their version of the Enfield Poltergeist with uh, the Conjuring Two, um, yep. the Enfield Poltergeist. So, and then the Enfield Haunting, which is a drama series uh, on Sky, which dealt with it as well. As um, you know, the a, a lot of information about the Enfield Poltergeist on there. So, um, so, I would say, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't um, subscribe to the theory that ghosts are people that are dead and that have come back to haunt us. That's not what I believe a ghost is. I believe a ghost is when someone dies in an horrific way, Mm -hmm. in a way um, which is um, traumatizing. I believe that we are, we are built up so much of energy. Think how much energy is pumping through our bodies all the time to pump our blood, to pump our hearts and our muscles, you know, the combustion of our, of our, bodies you know when we Mm. die that where does that energy go and Mm -hmm. i think that if that energy is released in such a quick sharp violent way 
it scars the world. And that's what I believe a ghost, a presence. Have you ever walked into a room? No one said anything. Like no one's like said a thing, but you walk into a room and you can feel that there's a bad atmosphere. Well, Keith, it's funny you say that because um, I've been feeling it through this whole podcast. <laughs> well, it's, it's, well, no, actually, not at all. But so I think one of the reasons why, as a family, we took such an interest in Ghostwatch when it came on uh, was um, we had just moved to Buckinghamshire, and the reason we had just moved fairly recently to Buckinghamshire was. Uh, we lived in a, um, a house not very long. Uh, we didn't last very long in a house in the Midlands, in the West Midlands. Um, and the reason we had to leave that house was um, it was haunted. And it was haunted. Uh, you know, the, the Enfield poltergeist was a big story. Um, it, the media were very, very kind of, uh, you know, they were on alert for any similar stories. So we had a number of paranormal investigators who lived with us for a period of time and then uh, mm-hmm. gradually things got pretty bad or, or pretty bad where we were living and then one night there was a, a series of, of events which uh basically led to my father moving us the very next day to london taking a pit stop in buckinghamshire to visit some family friends who happened to have a house on rent here so it's so the story of when i lived in a haunted house um is also the story of how i how as a family we moved to Buckinghamshire so to answer your question yes I've, I've definitely had that feeling uh I definitely think that there are I don't know what they are I think you know, um I've heard of ghosts and spirits and I've heard of jinns in the in the more Arabic culture um there's mm-hmm. there's many many different theories as to what these could be but uh who knows who knows there's definitely yeah. a negative energy though and you can feel it you can feel it yeah, ghosts to me are the scars of the world, you know. It's ha- mm. it's the energy left behind by... I mean, this is my opinion. And, it, you know, and um, that comforts me a little bit, you know, in a way that, you know, ghosts aren't malevolent. You know, they're always there, you know, always trying to possess. You know, the story mm-hmm. about ghosts, the usual haunting is that a ghost is a person that didn't want to die and therefore has come back to wreak havoc on the living. But, mm-hmm. you know, nobody got time for that. Anybody no got time for that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, shall we hit another ditty? Let's do it. Now on BBC One, Screen One presents an unusual and sometimes disturbing film marking Halloween. Over the centuries, there have been countless reports of ghosts and ghouls, but the line between fact and fiction has always been unclear. Using the modern idiom of the outside broadcast, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith and Craig Charles star in Ghostwatch. Now, do you... So that was the broadcast. That was uh, the BBC man. Thank you very much. That was great. Thank you, Untraced. Yeah, so he dropped me a WhatsApp to say he's he's, he's sent that through. So that was the broadcast. That was an intro that the BBC man did just before Ghostwatch was broadcast. Now, did you see how cleverly they didn't actually say it was a drama? They just said how the, 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 how the boundaries get blurred and using the modern idioms. I mean, they, they kind of alluded to the fact that this was drama. They had a chance to make this very clear that this was fiction, if that was what their intention was. But clearly their intention wasn't to do that. Does uh, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, that, that to me lends to it being 
more more of a drama. I know that uh, you know. I know that not everybody, you know, was privy to that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can see what you mean. I can see what you mean. That was really interesting, actually, to hear that again. I mean, God, where did you find that? <laughs> well, but I'll tell you what's interesting is that you don't often get to hear the BBC man saying anything other than, and now for the news. Right. I mean, that's East kind Denver. of what you. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, or after the break. You know, these are the things that you hear the BBC man say. So when we heard the BBC man say something other than what we're used to him saying, we knew there was something special that was going to be on TV. Mm hmm. <laughs> Little did you know that oh, all these yeah. years later you'd still be traumatized. <laughs> Talking about it on stereo. There you go. Talking about it on stereo. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for that. That was really interesting. Thank you for finding that for us. I hope Thank it wasn't too much of an issue. Right. I would just like to say hello to Mr. Keith Andrews and Mr. Ray J. I hope you're both well today and keeping safe, of course, and having a mitzvah of a day, of course. Uh, Love Melvin. Melvin. Love Melvin. One of my my favourite personalities on stereo. If you don't follow Melvin, you must follow Melvin. So funny. Brilliant. Keith, what's up, boo? How you doing? How's everything? Ray J UK, how's it going? Just stopping through to say what's up. Keith is my boo that I haven't seen (laughs) in forever. But I love you. And yeah, yeah, I'm just sitting there for a little bit till I get home. Keith is everyone's boo. You gotta share Keith, he's everyone's boo. Everyone Keith will catch up very soon. Very soon. I know you've been a very, very busy. Uh she's um (laughs) a wonderful, wonderful police officer in the in uh in uh the United States. So love you love you, darling. Uh we'll speak very soon. Okay, let's uh hit this last ditty, guys. Let's do it. Uh, thank you so much. We've had some really good messages in tonight as well. It's been really interesting to hear what you, uh, your experiences. Hope London. I hope we haven't brought back too many bad memories for you. And it hope was interesting London. to hear one of our cousins from the States saying that they'd seen Ghost Watch, but didn't yeah. know the full impact that it had, had over here in the UK. That was really interesting to hear that. So thank you so in- much. What's interesting is that like, I've, whilst talking to you i was just googling bits and pieces about ghostwatch and there's internet forums that are still active to this day from an international audience about ghostwatch so clearly it's had a much bigger impact than even i thought it did so yeah because it lives with you it lives under your skin like i was saying you know ghostwatch for many of us was viewed during our development years and that is it's in our dna it's like a lot of tv shows you know it's like things from certain movie franchises for me like they are in my DNA, but Ghostwatch lives even deeper and darker than that for me. Agreed, agreed. It was it was the flame that that lit the dark side of of my personality. Like when it so, comes to watching things like horror movies and reading ghost stories. The the bit that lit the dark side of my personality is that what you said? The flame oh, right. that lit. The, the flame, thank you. The flame that lit the dark side of your face. Very poetic. I love it. It's so true. Thanks, babe. Here we go. Yo, Keith. <laughs> Big word. Not seen you in a while, bro. Hope you're good. Hope you're good too, Ray J. I'm back Yo. on after a, a long hiatus. Yeah. Hope you're both doing all right. Jeez, I thought you were dead, Big Worse. <laughs> haven't seen nice. you in, in a long time. Hope you're well, my friend. Nice to see you, Big Words. I don't think we've ever spoken, but uh, I've dropped you a follow. Oh, he's... he's uh, changed that. He's an oldie, he is. 
he, he's, uh, he's back in the he's a back in the he's a back in the day area he is, but he does great shows with uh, the Connor Show. So yeah, tune into those; they're hilarious. I right. look forward to it. Well, um, I think that's I think we've covered every inch of of Ghostwatch. Thank you so much, uh, Ray J, for um, organizing and and bringing up this uh, talk because I tell you what, it, it, it's been amazing. It's really um, ignited again like my interest in not only Ghostwatch, but this genre, but thinking about it, letting it percolate over the last sort of couple of weeks um, really has made me think about the effect that this program had on me. And I think that having sort of talking, talked about it, it's a bit like lethargic, isn't it? To be able to talk about something that, caused you so much trauma but then that trauma turned to uh to love and creativity absolutely and look thank you very much for doing this with me i think what's interesting about this particular live is it came about just between a chat that you and i were having and it kind Mm. of this topic grew organically when we just realized holy shit this is something that impacted us hugely back in the day and -hmm. also like like i think we talked about this as much as we could without giving away too much which is often a, a challenging thing to do but for those of you like who who were listening, who are listening, I do encourage you to have a look, have a, to watch this. Um, I think a lot of what we talked about will make so much more sense when you do watch it. But make sure you watch it with in that same mindset. And Keith, I think you're right. I think um, looking back at this with a sense of huge excitement, I think like I mean, I was really looking forward to this live, and um, it was it's been it's been great talking talking about this. But it's true that fear has turned from something that was you know, hugely negative when I was growing up, right? To something that is just, you know, it's, it's positive. So mm-hmm. I love, I love, yeah. I love Ghostwatch then. Uh, and I love Ghostwatch now for a whole different set of reasons. Absolutely. Listen, guys, um, if you're interested, get onto YouTube, type in Ghostwatch BBC, watch it. You'll have a great time. Uh, I would, I would definitely agree with what, Ray J said, watch it with uh, rose-tinted glasses um, that you're back in 1992 on Halloween night at 9pm and settle down with a cup of tea and watch it. And I can guarantee With the lights you, off. Make sure the lights, with the lights off. off. Well. Yeah. And I can guarantee you, you will not be the same afterwards. Some, even if it's a 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. 0.1 change in how you see um uh, TV, where, how you see uh, the ghost story being told, mm-hmm. how you see uh, the use of um, of docudrama, how it can be used in different um, mediums, not just, i.e. in comedy like The Office. I guarantee you it would change your perception on, uh, on TV f- forever. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, and I promoted just as much. And I think, Keith, all that's left to say is a huge thank you to you, a huge thank you to the listeners. And you never know, we may come back with more horror-based uh, lives. Oh, we definitely will, because I thoroughly enjoyed this. So we'll, we too. will be back. I'm just going to go and uh, tweet Sarah Green, just to make sure she's okay. <laughs> let, let her know <laughs> we're all asking. So. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs>